Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Magneto's right. There's a war coming. You sure you're on the right side? Thank you, Twiggy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Steve's Video Store. I'm Steve, and I'm here tonight with my two guests, Tony Strauss of Wings Chop fame. Hello. And Nate Bradford. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for Well, in the past two or three years, the surrealism has really come back in force on the big screen. You started with Holy Motors, and you got a field in England. Lords of Salem, uh, Only God Forgives, and this year we finally got, after, isn't it about 20 years, Tony, a new film by yeah. Alejandro Jodorowsky? Finally. And what a yeah. film it was, yeah. huh? So, yeah. I think it was and 23 really years. Back, yeah. And it's really come back in a big way. So that's why I decided to do this show about surrealism and my first question to my guest is, Tony, why do you love surrealistic movies? Um, well, it's kind of a tough question because of the very nature of it. It's uh, it's something that affects you kind of internally rather than something you can necessarily put into words. But I, I would say probably my first surrealist film experience was uh, when I, when I uh, just – out of the blue rented eraser head back in like 85. And at the time I was just some innocent little Mormon kid that was really into movies. And it totally blew my mind. It freaked me out. I was depressed for like three days after I watched it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I vowed to never watch it again. And of course, two weeks later I bought it. So um, I, I think what it is to me is it's with surrealism, you can say things or show things that are, that tend to make bring cinema to a level of high art rather than just illustrated storytelling. Um, you can you can add impressions and feelings that you couldn't normally do with just a narrative storyline. Yeah, for me, it was probably Blue Velvet was my first surrealistic movie. Yeah. Oh God, what a movie! And that one just blew me away. I automatically declared that the and I still do declare it the best horror film to come out of the 80s. I would have a rough time arguing with that. And that's why I knew I was weird, because to me, I didn't think it was that weird. 
And then all of a sudden, I was like showing it to other people, and they're like, what is this? This is bizarre. I'm like, what? <laughs> and what's funny is it's one of David Lynch's more straightforward movies. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Nate? What do you like to realism? Uh, well, you know, uh, I've always been a very vivid dreamer. I have very vivid dreams, and, um, you know, I think I've, I've been attracted to, to these kind of films because they have, they all share that dreamlike quality. You know, there's a dreamlike logic at work in a lot of these films, the way that they flow, um, and they're, they're so open to interpretation, you know, as opposed to, a, you know, a blockbuster that you go to see at the theater that just spells out the story for you from beginning to end. You know, that, that's great for a popcorn movie. That's that's fun, you know, for once in a while. But, you know, I really, it's like Tony said, you know, it's 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 high art. It's, it's, it's not just, um, you know, someone churning out a product. It's someone imbuing, imbuing something with passion, you know. It's something that they're, and uh, like with a lot of the films that we're going to talk about tonight, I'm sure it's, it's, uh, it's exploratory for these filmmakers, you know, and it's, it makes you feel more of a connection with them, you know. Uh, I don't feel any connection to watching a Michael Bay movie and watching, you know, Transformers blow up, uh, you know, blow up buildings. It's fun. It's fun to watch, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make me feel any connection to him as an artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, for me, that's important. And, and uh, I would say, too, probably the first uh, surrealist film I ever saw was, was Blue Velvet. And, uh, and, and like you said, Tony, it, it is pretty much one, it's one of David Lynch's most straightforward movies. But, uh, you know, like, like Steven said, that's how, I, that's how I started to know that I was into weird cinema, too, when I would try to show it to my friends who were into more mainstream stuff. And they were like, what are you watching? What are you spending your time doing? You're, you're insane. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool how all three of us uh, kind of got indoctrinated by David Lynch. That's that's pretty cool. Well, he was the easiest to see on v- v- VHS. That's a very good point. You couldn't really get much else in in that at that time. Because Jodorowsky was having this feud with Alan Klein, and that went along for many many years. Yeah, and it was it wasn't until post Santa Sangre that you could really see any Hodorowsky films at all. Yeah, yeah that and was, guess who bootlegged them? Uh, Santa Sangre was the first one that I ever saw, and it was totally yeah. just by co- coincidence on VHS. I found it in a in a thrift store, and I had never seen one of his movies before. I had read about them, I had heard about them, but I had never seen one. Yeah, I had the privilege the first, of seeing. Oh, sorry, Stephen, go ahead. I think the first Jodorowsky film I seen because none of the video stores around here would get him was uh, a bootleg of El Topo in the late nineties. The one with the it was the one with the weird English dub of it, not the Spanish dub. Yeah, I remember that very much. Um, it wasn't uh, was it Hoberman or Rosenbaum's book, uh, Midnight Movies? Um, yeah, that's. The, that's the book that I found out and, about Hodorowsky through. And, and uh, I just Perry read about Cole it. Movie. Oh, yeah. Don't forget Danny Perry. Um, but I read about Hober in, in the Hoberman and Rosenbaum book. I read about El Topo and the Holy Mountain, and I was just completely blown away. I had picked up the book because it talked extensively about Eraserhead. But then I read about this Hodorowsky guy, and I was like, i got to see this man's movies. 
And it just so happened in the summer of 1990, I was visiting some friends in Connecticut, and we found out three days beforehand that not only was Santa Sangre playing in New York City, but it was only playing for three more days. So we took a bus to New York City just to see it the last two nights it was in the theater. And that was a pretty awesome experience. Yeah, oh, I think I would. I think I would love to see that on on the big screen. It's so it, the colors are so vibrant, and it's just I mean it must it's got to look amazing. That's one of those films that I would I would do the same if I knew it was playing anywhere that I could get to before it was gone. I'd go. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. And then oh, I man, didn't get to see like... El Topo until about another year after that. And a friend of this guy I met at a friend's party just happened to have El Topo and the Holy Mountain bootleg VHSs in his backpack at the party. And I'm like, dude, we got to go to my house and watch these right now. So we left the party and watched back-to-back El Topo and the Holy Mountain, and, uh, you know, he let me have – he let me dub off his uh, movies while we were watching them. But I didn't get to see him, you know, clearly for several years later. That's how you it's know you're a real If you – Listen to the commentary of the Holy Mountain that Jodorowsky himself was the one who put out those bootlegs. And that was another yeah. reason him and Alan Klein did not get along for that <laughs> Yeah, that just kind of exacerbated the situation because Jodorowsky was like, you know what, you won't help me release them? Fuck you, I'll release them illegally. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy Jodorowsky is. Well, if you watch the dance of reality, you can see that he gets a lot of that from his father. Yeah. Oh, man. What a nightmare of a father, huh? <laughs> oh, you don't understand. I, that's, as I call it, Latino macho bullshit, because I had to deal with the same stuff from my father as a kid. So I was having, yeah, like, you... flashbacks when I was watching. Yeah, you told like, me that. Don't be a faggot. Be a man. Don't embarrass us. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember you told me how clo- how strongly that affected you when you were watching Dance of Reality. Yeah. It was like yep. a little too close to the nose for me, and I was like, you had to be telling the truth. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a powerfully honest film. You know, he he calls it a, what did he call it, a psychological autobiography. Yeah. And I'm but, sure that's, you know, I'm sure that's why, like I said before, you know, I'm sure that's what why he made it. You know, he was exploring, those, you know, exploring his own past and, and, you know, looking for that kind, maybe looking for that closure. I mean, certainly the end of the movie seems to indicate that as they, you know, ride away on the boat. And, I know. I, it really well, kind of, I choked up at the end there. Yeah. To me, it's almost the like his farewell. When he's going away, it seems like he dies at the end of the movie. It sure does. Yeah, it sure it does. It almost like seems like a filmmaker's away. farewell. Yeah. yeah. It's another one that's like, if he makes another movie, I'll be shocked. Because even he talks about he doesn't want, really want to make another movie. He wants to make an animated version of Sons of El Topo, and he's doing the comic of it. So he wants he wants to make that into an animated film now? Yeah. Yeah, wow. that's why I didn't realize he's too old to do it, you know. Is the project still called Abel Kane? 
I don't know what he's calling it now because he's had like three or four names of it. I remember there's uh, there was Sons of El Toro when he w- couldn't get the El Topo name. Then right. Abel Kane. Yeah, the last I, I heard it was changed to Abel Kane. El Topo now that he's good in good with Alan Klein again. Oh, are they are they back in okay terms now? Yeah, that's why his movies are out on Blu-ray and DVD. And yeah, I, I didn't know out, how far uh, that went. Reality. Yeah. Well, that's good. I wasn't sure how far that went, if it was just a, a reluctant business agreement or what. Well, you know, I thought... again, go to the commentary of Holy Mountain where they talked that they met and did their make culpas and everything's fine between them now. Oh, that's good. I, uh, I thought that, you know, uh, Dance of Reality was a nice uh, companion piece to to both El Topo and and Holy Mountain. They all they all seem to explore very uh, similar similar themes, and uh, you know I think uh, you know Stephen like those articles that you wrote back for our massive uh, when you were uh, doing yeah. your exploration of the Jodorowsky films and you talked about mm-hmm. uh, El Topo you know being like the stages the different stages of of life you know mm-hmm. uh, I thought. I saw a lot of that mirrored in the, you know, the story, you know, clearly he was telling the story of his father in this film, but it also seemed to be very similar to to El Topo in that, in that manner, that it was like each section of his life was a different phase of, of who he was as a person, you know? And, yeah. uh, that's, and I think that was kind of the therapeutic value for, for him to step back and, and look at that and see that, you know, much like the stories that he was telling when he was younger, now he can he can look at his father and see well you know his father was many different types of of man throughout the course of his life you know yeah, yeah. so you know it's interesting a lot of oh sorry what no that no that's fine I was just that's what I you know I just I saw a lot of parallels between those those films and and uh, especially oh, there's with, uh, a little something from basically every film he he's done except for maybe Tusk yeah right. I was gonna say Which, that too yeah. I still haven't I'm seen Tusk, but the rain some of us. See if he recreates in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that blew me away because you know for the longest time he had disowned the Rainbow Thief, and then he kind of gives it a nod in in Dance of Reality after the director's cut has come out, which surprised and delighted us all that we even got to get that. But because uh, for the longest time he had disowned the Rainbow Thief, and then it it felt like a harmonious peace within his work once Dance of Reality came out. Yeah. And he's trying to get Tusk out, but they can't find good copy of it. That's what he said. The problem with Tusk is they can't find good material for it so far. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. If you've seen a copy that's on YouTube, it looks like crap. Yeah, Yeah, that's why I haven't watched it. I have a horrible bootleg of it. It's just miserable. Yeah, it's everyone says it's the it's the least good of his movies, but that doesn't change me wanting to see it desperately. Yeah. I and mean, then most of them say that Santa Sangre is his best film and I'm like, No. Strangely it's enough, normal think, film. Yeah, I was gonna say it's 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 his most accessible, even though it's a bizarre movie, I think, you know, and that's what people you know, that's what people lean towards and that's you know, obviously not people who are listening to this right now and people who are interested in these type of movies, but, you know, it's hard to, 
like I said, it's hard to break people of those of those habits. People go to the movies because they want to be told a story and, you know, just not have to think for two hours. Yeah. You know? Right. I think yeah. my favorite one of his has the most honest trailer of all, and that's The Holy Mountain. Because if you yeah. listen to that trailer, it's warning you how extreme it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't don't see this like movie. You're probably your experience will prepare you. <laughs> you probably yeah. won't like it. <clears throat> uh, but you know, I I saw again. Uh, I saw a lot. Of, you know, there was a, uh, you know, when when his father uh, comes back, uh, you're, you know, and when his uh, his hands are paralyzed, and uh, you know he's going through the town, and the, everyone's pelting him, and you know, admonishing yeah. him as being a murderer. And that reminded me a lot of. Uh, it was kind of a nice juxtaposition for, for uh, you know, for the plot of, of Holy Mountain. Uh, you know, yeah. The thief, the thief comes to town, you know, hoping to scam the townspeople, and instead they revere him, you know. And right. uh, this was kind of the other side of that, you know. He comes to town wanting to help, and they all despise him, you know. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And, it, you know, it got me thinking about the way, you know, that filmmakers evolve and, and the the different spin that that you can put on an idea, you know, and you know, and and Jodorowsky is really good about, you know, he, he's great for that, you know, all of all of his movies are so filled with philosophy and and you know, yeah, he, he he's exploring all aspects of of the world, you know, truly, and you know, and he's doing it brilliantly through some amazing films. So, yeah, you know. adding on adding on to what you were just saying, they uh, the. Uh, that that whole aspect of the father's return and stuff also kind of uh, somewhat touches on the second half of El Topo, with yeah. the uh, the cultists in the town and the father and the you know the son being the priest and the reunification there and the animosity. Uh, that it kind of reminded me of that too when I was watching Dance of Reality, and right. uh, and a lot of people don't point this out about Hodorowsky, but to me a lot of his films are very very much. Uh, structurally in line with Joseph Campbell's hero's journey as well. And, sure. you know, he he goes through metaphysical stages, but they also parallel mythology, or mythological hero's journey. And, and, and that, quite, yeah. Well, well like most people don't get Holy Mountain because they don't understand the journey. The journey for, of that is... Uh, to me, it's from surreal, super surrealism to surrealism to mm-hmm. magic reality mm-hmm. to filmic reality. And then at the end, it continues its journey by totally destroying the film reality and going to reality itself. Right, and uh, that almost parallels the the reaching of enlightenment is when they basically destroy the film and turn the cameras around and all of a sudden... This this disruption is almost like reaching enlightenment within the film. Yeah, and the fact that there is really never any end to any journey. There is only right. the next step to the next part of the journey. Right, well, which kind of reminds me of, of David Lynch's Inland Empire, is that circular film that makes it feel like it will, the, the surrealistic world will continue and go back on itself, and it makes you feel like it's always been happening. You guys saw Inland yeah, Empire, like, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, but like you know, uh, Twin Peaks, it was never really supposed to end. Period. Right. 
Right. And Laura Palmer's murder is supposed to be the least significant thing in the whole story. Exactly. But, you know, the, the, strange, the thing about a movie like Inland Empire, and I totally agree with what you're saying, but, you know, this is one thing about uh, David Lynch's films as opposed to, you know, uh, Jodorowsky. Uh, you know, Lynch's films do work with that strange dream-type logic that I was talking about, but I don't always understand what he's getting at, you know? I, you, you you can look at a movie like uh, like El Topo, and like you said, yeah, it's, you know, like... Um, like you said, Tony, it, it represents the hero's journey. And like, like Stephen pointed out uh, in the past, you know, that it takes you through all the stages of, of the character's lives. It does have a circular logic in so much as when the son comes back at the end, he, he supplants the father. He, you know, he continues the, the, the journey as the there. father. Right. He becomes you know, a surrogate. You know, but I, I just, you know, I love David Lynch, but I don't always understand what he's getting at. And I really, I that was all I really got from Inland Empire was it you know it, it starts where it ends where it starts and so in that in that way it, you know I, I apparently David Lynch himself says it's kind of an admonishment of of of, of Hollywood and and filmmaking but I don't get right. all of it I don't get all of, of like that well represents. I consider uh, Lost Empire the only film I've ever seen that really illustrate what a Mobius loop is. Right. right. Yeah. That was and it, uh, does have, it does have that very interesting shift in the middle where uh when, when Laura Dern uh walks down the hall and then it's the it's the other side of the story. Because right. she was the one who she was the one who made the noise that she heard uh earlier yes. in the film. And yeah, exactly. Very yeah, bizarre. See, Lynch loves that is to make everything one half, one thing, and then right in the middle of the film, that's when he does the twist, and it becomes something completely different. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people completely disagree with me, but that's one of the big reasons that my favorite Lynch film is Lost Highway. I absolutely love love the structure of that film. I love it because there's no beginning and no end to it. And yet even though you can't necessarily describe what the story is about, that's one of the few Lynch films where you can kind of like feel what the story is about. And yeah. even though it, it's got hints of linearism in it, 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 you can't follow it as a, as a completely straight linear plot. However, when it's all over a couple of days later, it all starts to make this weird kind of sense. Yeah. Okay. How about this is a rare case when a surrealistic movie that when it first came out was just totally bizarre and unbelievable becomes reality. And you know what film I'm probably gonna I'm talking about, don't you? Not quite sure. Videodrome. Ah, uh, that's that's interesting. And when I was it came out in nineteen ninety two, I was like, "This is weird. This is bizarre. This can never happen." And then yep. at the end of the nineties, <laughs> here comes the internet, and guess what? We all have video names. We all yeah. live reality. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, video drum, video drum rocked my world when that when I finally saw that. That was that was something new. And you're you're right; it was very prophetic. But you know that happens a lot. Cronenberg, especially, he's so he's so uh, fetishistic with technology and so obsessed with it that his movies kind of become 
fairly prophetic. I mean, look at Rabbit. The, the structure of the medical scenes in Rabbit kind of prefigures stem cell research. And, you know, the way they, the way they uh, take uh, human tissue and negate it to make it moldable as something else, and that's stem cell mm-hmm. research right there. And have you guys uh, read Cronenberg's novel? Uh, no. Uh, no, I I've highly never. recommend no, picking it up. It's like old school. It's like old school Cronenberg. It's uh, it just came well, out like two months ago. It's called Consumed. Cronenberg is the only one filmmakers I know that there is no such thing as a Cronenberg movie. Because <laughs> you can go well, to Lynch and you can see a certain style in all his movies, and same yeah. with Joe Dworsky and them, but Cronenberg. You really don't see a consistent theme in all of his movies, you know. No. The one thing thing that comes up most often is people say, you know, he made, and this was true earlier in his career, he made a lot of body horror movies, you know, like The Fly and and Rabbit and and things like that. But that's definitely not true of of his, the, the later half of his career, so. Yeah, he's turned very chameleonic after... Like post post Dead Ringers, he really took new direction. Yeah, and I think uh, you know after uh, uh, Existence, he kind of uh, he kind of shied away from from that that kind of uh, stuff. You know, he moved into I guess maybe Crash. Could, I can't remember. Did Crash come out before or after Existence? But uh, I think it came out before. Came after. Yeah, I think. I think it, you know, that probably could have been considered his last like body horror movie before he moved into, yeah. you know, the, the stuff he's doing. Most people really does not in existence. Most people don't realize the big clue of it because of the name of the co- companies, Existence and Transdens. Right. Right. Which really means existential transcendental. You know, existential trans. I can't say that word. <laughs> transcendental, you know, existential, trans, yeah, transcendentalism. Yes. Where yeah, and, and, it is to go beyond reality is to make what is not real real. Yeah, and existence to me is like the perfect companion piece to Videodrome. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like the it's the like the logical extension of the world beyond Videodrome to me, and it's also the last pure Cronenberg film. It's the last film he made. He wrote the script and developed the whole thing and produced it and directed it himself. Ever since then, he's directed other people's scripts. It would be nice no, to see him uh, go back to one of his own. Yeah, what's weird is Videodrome was his, he did on his own. Everything yeah. after that was pretty much Hired Gun or a remake because after he got burnt badly by Universal Videodrome, he was really gun-shy about doing his own scripts again. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if and it was him being gun shy or just not being able to find the funding for. No, he said it in interviews he was gun shy. Really? I wonder why. Yeah. Well, because that Universal promised him in summary too, he's going to get a big release and they was going to really do right by his movie. Huh. And then once ET hit, they was like, "Screw everything else that we got set up." It might have been one of those cases where, you know, they thought they knew what they were buying, and then once they saw it, they were like, eh, yeah. we don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah. Like, you uh, know, Masters of Horror and the Miyake one. 
Yeah, oh, right. yeah, imprint. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, but, we we want to get a Mayaki film, and then when they got it, like, what is this? Right, we're not going like, to show this. <laughs> <laughs> and they, that was that was a total Miike film from from top to bottom. It was like a it was like a best of Miike yeah. all crammed into one hour. And most people, and it's easy to get once you know what he's talking about, because it's a Jigaku, a hell film. Mm-hmm. So once yes. you get to where they're going on the boat is crossing the river Styx into hell, the rest of the story makes sense. Yeah, and there's another one that 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 takes that's a surrealist film that takes the structure of a journey by stages, and each stage is a progression into another world or or another level of existence mm. which kind of you know takes us back to what Khodorovsky likes to do with his films is those stages and I wonder I wonder if uh because I mean there's quite a few um even field in England is kind of structured like that yeah. and it seems like a lot of these surrealists like to do these journey through stages of awareness or existence or reality I mean even Richard Stanley's red Dust Devil is structured like that. Yeah. What I didn't notice until he mentioned it in there is that every time you see the Dust Devil, something about his dress is different. What's that? Every time you see the Dust Devil in every scene, something about his costume is different. Right, exactly. Whether it's the bones on the back or the sleeves, or yeah, there's something slightly different about him every time because he can't completely join reality. Yeah. He's always a little and bit apart from it. most people don't get the Dust Devil is a prequel to hardware. Yep, it sure is. Yeah, that guy that walks in and sells Moe's uh, robot that starts all the trouble, that's the Dust Devil. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's too bad that Hardware 2 never got made because that was a hell of a script. Yeah, well, we're getting a story about... Uh, Stanley and Island and Dr. Moreau, the movie's out, but hopefully we'll get it on DVD or on demand somewhere in the next year so we can see it. That documentary about that? Yeah. Yeah, I've only heard a little bit about it. Is that thing finished? Yeah, it's finished at Slate Festival this year. Oh, okay. Dang, I really want to see that. It's hilarious. The story's hilarious because if you watch Island and Dr. Moreau, you can see Stanley in it in uh, an amazing amount of scenes. Yeah, he's, he's in full makeup, standing around, watching his dream being taken away from him. Yeah. But he's wearing that hat. Yep. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, that has to be Stanley. There's his hat. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I love that whole ploy of his that he had friends on the makeup department that just said, sure, we'll make you up and you can be an extra. That was a, that was a pretty sly move. Yeah. The only so, one uh, that I know that's a direct acolyte of uh, Joe Dworsky is uh, Nicholas Renfin. Yeah, he's he's a big so fan. The only God forgives at the very end had two Joe Dworsky. What's that? At the end of Only God Forgives, it has two Joe Dworsky. Yeah, also, uh, and Valhalla Rising was dedicated to him, too. Yeah. It's sad that he 
got backlash because people seen his only normal movie. Drive. Yeah. Because if you watch yeah, Monson or Mahala Rising, you'll be expecting Only God Forgives. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, again, I... Oh, sorry. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, again, it's a case, though, of the most easily accessible movie. I think Drive is pretty surreal. If for no other reason, it, it it's kind of a... It shares that same kind of... Um, uh, like like Kubrick did with Eyes Wide Shut. It's like, where in New York City is Tom Cruise that there's no people out at, you know, midnight? Exactly. Exactly. You know, where, where in where in L.A. are they, or, you know, where in, in Drive that there's never anybody around except for the characters who are involved with the story, you know? Yeah. It's just kind and, of hyper-reality. And and it is. It, it, and it's a, it's, I think it's a surrealist twist on that kind of, this is how, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, in Drive, um, you know, uh, we're supposed to see that this guy is alone in the world, you know, and right. and you're right. And so they exemplify that by putting him alone in this world, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, you know. Well, the I, most so surreal I, moment of Drive to me was the elevator scene because they start yeah. kissing and then the music comes up and I'm like, what is that? I know that song. I know that. Oh my God! They're playing the theme to Goodbye Uncle Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of uh, weird too. I I actually had to look that up. I'm like, where do I know that music from? And I looked it up, and it kind of blew me away that it was from Goodbye Uncle Tom. Yeah, like you know, as soon as I heard that song, I'm like something fucked up is going to happen right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But yeah, I do agree. Like, like uh, you well, know, you, I, Nate, I think, you've seen uh, Only God Forgives, right? You know, honestly, I I didn't care for it as much as as some of uh, some of his earlier movies. You know, and like like you said, you know, it's a shame that most people now everything that he does is going to be compared to Drive. But personally, that's kind of what I did with it too. You know, I think I went into it hoping that I was going to see another Drive. You know, because I I loved that movie. I thought Drive was, that was one of my favorite movies. You and I talked about it when it came out. We talked about yeah. how much we loved it. And uh, yeah. you know, I I thought Only God Forgives. It was it that again goes back to what we were talking about with those surrealist like the hero's journey. You know, going through the different stages of uh, you know of enlightenment in in a way. You know, as he gets closer and closer to his to his goal. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. But, but people yeah. don't get what uh, the main character's goal was, and that was the ending with him getting his hands cut off was not the cop punishing him. That was what he wanted. That's why the right. cop was looking at him weird when he sat next to him in the club. No, he very much wanted that. Yeah. Yeah, because if you remember every scene with the girl, he always had his hands tied down. Mhm. And every in every scene with him in it, there's always an extreme amount of red. That's another that thing to really... is how color coded the movie is. And that there you, you know, go. There's there's a nod to Jodorowsky right there. You know, he loves to soak his movies in 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 red. And and I was just talking about this earlier. I'm like, Jodorowsky has some obsession with people losing their hands. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. 
that, that is evident. Like every movie, there's someone with no hands, you know. And it and it I think it takes obviously it's the biggest it plays the biggest part in Santa Sangri when the son has to play piano for his mother because she has no arms anymore, you know. Right. Uh, and and That's I, another I'm one funny. people really don't get that it's a happy ending. Oh, it's a wonderfully <laughs> happy ending. <laughs> yeah, because he stand there and said, "Raise your hands." Yes, these are my hands. Mine. Yeah, he's, he's finally. He's finally free, and he's got his own hands again. I, on the first uh, the first viewing of of, uh, of Dance of Reality, I was certain when uh, when uh, the father was confronting the Nazis and telling them that he couldn't open his hand, I was convinced they were going to cut his hands off. I'm like, here it comes, here it comes. Yeah, another, exactly. Uh, I was like, they're going to cut his hands off. It's another uh, Jodorowsky, uh, you know. And I kind of wonder what that obsession is of his, you know, where that comes from. I understand, you know, everyone's afraid of losing, you know, obviously you use your hands more than any other part of your body. So, you know, with the possible exception of your legs, but I don't well, know. It sounds like before, the know. only really vivid memory he has of his hand, of uh, his father doing anything loving toward him. Right. Was that scene at the very end of Dance Reality where he was walking along the seaside with his father father held his hand. He said that's the only time he can remember his father being loving toward him. Huh. Huh. Well, that that could be part of it. Um, Also, uh, Hodorowsky seems to see the hands and depict a person's hands as part of their, as an important part of their means of expression and almost, you know, he's very much into uh, mime and magic, and the hands are very much a part of both of those. They're used to express when your mouth cannot be trusted. And I think loss yeah, of hands was, is probably uh, a loss of He's done a lot of things for, for uh, Marcel Marceau back in the day. Yeah, yeah he wrote Marcel Marceau's, Marceau's most scene. famous mime. Yeah, he, yeah. He, yeah. I kind of forgot all about that, which is odd, yeah, because I, I was thinking it when I was watching uh, uh, watching – Dance of Reality, I'm like, well, here we are back at the circus, which is also a common theme that he goes back to in his films, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But obviously that's, you know, because of his, his background, well, his upbringing. Well, this information was on uh, the Fando and List documentary, doc, con, uh, commentary. Constellation. Fando and List is his most meh film. His most what? Well, Meh film, the one that's just barely uh, okay. Ah, uh, see, I really like that one. I I thought that one was really cool. I love the way it's just pure panic theater. That's to me, that's like the yeah. one film that actually captured the panic movement on on screen. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that like Peter Brook has done some some nice work with the panic movement and stuff, but you know, we're talking the purists, the guys who started it. That's that's the, yeah. the the most heavily influenced by Antonin Artaud film that I've ever seen personally. What was his? What was the other guy that uh, founded the movement with him? Arabelle. Yeah, Arabelle. It wasn't until yeah. I seen uh, Viva la Muerte that I un- that I finally figured out which play of Arabelle's did Jodorowsky see that he vaguely adapted Fando a list from. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you could go straight from the ending of uh, 
people are worried, and besides the gender slit change, go straight into find a way list. You know, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. I wonder if you could get away with something like that nowadays where you just base your work on someone else's work completely and say, but it's not really, it's I, it's based on a dream I had about the work that they did. Or, it was you based, know, like, it was based like, on like, a big was, memory Joe Dworsky had. What well, Arabelle said, he doesn't speak highly of Joe Dworsky for some reason. <laughs> oh, who? Arabelle doesn't? No. He's not fond of Jodorowsky? No. He says that uh, he never worked with Jodorowsky. It was just an idea that they came up with on paper, the panic movement. Huh. Interesting. I've got I thought, uh, I they were buddies. set one that has Viva La Muerte, uh, I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse, to Generica Tree. Oh, there's a set out with all three of those? Oh, man, i got to get that. It came out with two His early films, like I said, Crazy Horse, Viva La Muerte, and uh, Generica Tree, and the second set with his later films. Wow. Okay, i got to find that. And when did it come out? Uh, maybe like 2000, 2002. Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> We'll now pause while you order some things off the internet and. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 saved in my wish list. We can move on. <laughs> but I'm like you, Nate. I really truly loved Only God Forgives. My top three of last year should really show how much I love surrealism. Uh, it was uh, number one was A Field in England. Number two mm-hmm. was uh, Only God Forgives, and number three was The Lords of Salem. Hmm. I would. I would. I, I like Lords of Salem more, uh, mostly because I I was getting tired of Rob Zombie. You know, like I I liked uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and and you know uh, Devil's Rejects, and then he kind of lost me with those Halloween remakes. But that's not yeah. really his fault. You know, I'm just not a big fan of remakes, and you really got to do something special if you're gonna to catch my attention with a remake. And yeah. I would. I was about ready to write him off, but then Lords of Salem was, that was a pretty crazy movie. And you're right, that that's about as surreal as they come. Yeah, and honestly, I think that so far for me personally, that is Rob Zombie's masterpiece, is Lords of Salem. Oh, yeah, uh, it's, definitely, me, it's definitely his best. What it felt like to me, to me was like, like Kubrick, Kubrick directing a Hammer film is what it felt like to me. <laughs> Right? To me, it's like when I warn people that ask me about it, like Rob Zombie hadn't seen, I said, okay, at 45 minutes into the film, you know which thing I'm talking about? The scene with her and the priest? Yeah. The movie goes yep. fat shit crazy, and it just yeah. goes with it. And it stays crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's similar. The movie is kind of seems similar to me to, like, like a really ramped-up version of uh, of. Uh, House of the Devil, you know, remember uh, 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 who directed that? The Ty that? West film? Yeah, the Ty West film. You know, oh, the, yeah. those, the, those two movies share similarities, but it's like, uh, you know, House of the Devil takes the real subtle, like, uh, you know, just straightforward, you know, and it, and then Lords of Salem, it's kind of the same structure, but it goes right up over the top, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he goes, yeah I never he noticed goes that, but that's pretty astute. 
He goes full on Ken Russell. Yeah. Rob yeah, Zombie it was goes like, full on Ken Russell with the last half of Lords of Salem. Yep. Well, to me, it felt like a, a hybrid of Ken Russell and Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. The Kubrick hybrid is, I don't know if you've seen it yet, is that one with Scarlett Johansson from earlier this year? Oh, In the Skin or Under the Skin? Or yeah, what that In the Skin. I really no. want to see that. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it's it's definitely on my to-do list. Yeah, me That too. one's if Kubrick went full surreal. I mean, it's just weird from the start, and it's a good, good weird. There's no dialogue in it for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Wow. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, you know, I can't wait to see that. I, I knew you were going to bring up uh, Ken Russell, obviously, but uh, it's interesting going back to what I was saying before about how David Lynch, his films are so often impenetrable to me, whereas, again, Ken Russell is another one of those directors who's, you know, like Jodorowsky, he's very surreal, but I get what he's saying. You know, I, I understand his, his point. You know, I... I so I don't get lost in those scenes, you know. I understand what he's getting at most of the time. Yeah, and I think that that's in keeping with Lynch's goals, though, because I think Lynch is fascinated with other worlds that we can't quite grasp, and you know these these dream worlds and nightmares that you can't escape from. So How I think that's part of Lynch's have you strength. Seen from David Lynch. How many what? How many commentaries have you seen from David Lynch? Negative four. <laughs> yeah, he has said he wants to keep his films without the commentary on purpose. Yeah, he doesn't like explaining his films. And I appreciate yeah. that from him because, to me, his films are about these strange places that are disorienting and confusing that you can't escape from, but they almost tease you that they should make sense, but they really don't. And that's the horror of it. To me, like all David Lynch films are horror on some level. Because oh, of for that. sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think our but, you problem know, is all of us is just maybe one or two, maybe just one barely, we missed the whole midnight movie movement. Yeah, yeah, I'm just a few years too young for that. Yeah, me too. No, I, I just barely missed about a skin of my teeth. Yeah, I never, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, I can I can say I came of age right at the dawn of, of VHS, like you were saying earlier, Stephen, and... Uh, and yeah, so and my parents were so permissive; they never paid any attention to what videos we were renting. So I saw a lot of movies that I probably shouldn't have seen when I was, you know, ten, twelve years old. <laughs> I had a mom but, and pop gave a damn what they rented to you. Okay, you want to rent Manson the documentary uncut? Okay, here, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember. You know, Last House on the Left, Solo. There are movies that I walked out of the video store with when I was, you know. 10, 12 years old, that there's no way they should have let me rent. <laughs> Holy shit, you saw Solo before you were 12 years old? I was, probably, I was probably like 12 or 13 when I saw it for the first time. Oh, man, how much did your therapy cost? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know, I'm still going. <laughs> Damn, that's one messed up movie. Yeah, I think the movie the that I've seen that. is pretty much surreal that I've probably seen too young. Was I was about 11 when my dad bought home Franco Ferrari's Tales of Ordinary Madness. Oh, yeah. Wow. With Ben Gazzara. I'm talking about blowing my mind at 11. Karen Bukowski at 11. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a little young to be seeing that. <laughs> 
the funny thing is, though, like, I think, you know, the reason why a lot of these, the, the earliest surreal movies that I saw really impacted me is because I think my relationship with surrealism before I found it on film had more to do with things like, uh, you know, like Saturday Night Live, like, the, you know, Saturday Night Live in the, in the 70s and 80s, you know, had like that, yeah. still had that weird edginess to it, you know? That or, absurdism. Or like, uh, I know, I, like, yeah. I totally agree with you because to me, like the gateway to to understanding surrealism is through absurdist comedy. I mean, sure, yeah. to me, that's like uh, perfect training wheels. I think the and one we, that fits that perfectly the most is the one with Chevy Chase where he played Julia Child. Right. <laughs> and oh, Dan he Aykroyd. cut his face, finger or something. He just kept bleeding in an obscene amount. Yeah, yeah. For five was... minutes, and that was a joke. Yep, exactly. Just keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And, you know, like things like that, you know, like, again, my parents were very permissive. They never paid attention to what we were watching. So, you know, I'm watching Monty Python and, and Saturday Night Live. And, you know, and for me, that those things were very surreal to me and I was attracted to it. I didn't really realize there was a horrific element to it. At that time when I was watching horror movies, you know, with the exception of the occasional Solo or Last House on the Left, I was watching the same horror movies kids my age were watching, Friday the 13th, right. you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, very straightforward horror. So I didn't realize, you know, and even even as I got older, like, I remember starting to see a, a trend of more, you know, more surrealism coming, like, Ralph Bakshi's uh, Mighty Mouse cartoon, remember that, how weird oh. that thing was? Or, yeah, like, Ren, was and, awesome. Ren and Stimpy, like, you know... Even then, it was still like the, the the elements of surrealism seemed to be embedded in comedy for me until I, again, like I said, I saw Blue Velvet, and I was like, well, that was friggin' weird and scary, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was about it that terrified me so much until, you know, I made this connection, and I was like, well, this is on the same level as as this stuff that I've already been interested in, but it's it's in a very dark, dark direction. Right. It, it amazes me how big Twin Peaks hit with people as, sur- as surreal and just plain weird as it was. Yeah. Yeah, and at never... the same time, totally followable. But it's funny because we were talking about this before. It's like something when that show hit the air, you know, I knew like 10 people who watched it. Everyone else was like, no, it's too weird. It's I don't get it, you know. Now, like we were talking about earlier, Stephen, you put something like uh, "Too Many Cooks" on TV, and oh, people eat have that you got to see that yet, Tony? <laughs> no, it's funny. Somebody just posted that on my wall today, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, what the hell is it? What is it? It it starts out as a normal, uh, you know, promo for an upcoming sitcom. And uh-huh. then it goes fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, does it go insane in like a Tim and Eric kind of way? No, insane yeah. is in a David Lynch type way, dark. Oh, awesome. <laughs> it, it, it might be like if David Lynch directed an episode of Tim and Eric. Kind oh, of. good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's bizarre. But, you know, I'll that, have to that, check that out. You know, it, that's the thing is like, you know, we're talking about all all these movies that we were watching that are all, you know, these older films and, you know, 
I, I agree with Stephen that surrealism is coming back in a huge way. I mean, like, you can't even watch a TV commercial. Have you seen a friggin' Skittles commercial lately? Like, those things are oh, just bizarre. Or that, bizarre, yeah. And that, the, the, <laughs> Hanes, the, Hanes, the Hanes commercial where the dude wears a shirt made out of cats, just, you oh, know, yeah, like, yep. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, it, those are all very, like, surreal and strange, but, like, someone at some huge advertising agency is being like, yep, people, people will get into this. You know, the same people who didn't understand Twin Peaks 20 years ago are going to love this bizarro Skittles commercial that we came up with, you know? Right. <laughs> and Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. What, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh, Hannibal That's a really very does go show. over the top into surrealism. Yeah, it sure does. And look at, look at uh, True Detective did the same I thing. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. True Detective. True Detective, very, very similar. True and True Detective has a lot of similarities between people. Lovecraft territory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that's exactly what True Detective was. It was like the Yellow King meets Lovecraft. But it's just, it's interesting how much more mainstream, you know, like we were saying before, just like, yeah, Tim and Eric or uh, what, check it out with Steve Brule or you know, like all that stuff, it's just commonplace. It's popular. I mean, people yeah. want more of it. They want more and more of it. Well, look and how people like, have gone crazy over Holy Motors. I didn't like it that much, but everybody's like, everybody's like, wow, this movie's amazing. This movie's amazing. I loved Holy Motors. Yeah, I, I did, absolutely I love that one. I did too. I thought it was it was very, very interesting. And it goes right back to what I said at the at the top of the show about just there was a there might have been a logic to it, but to me it was just like dreaming, you know, just it was like oh. a very vivid dream where things just flow from one to the next and you don't really have yeah. any control over it. <laughs> yeah. See to me, uh Holy Motors would make like a perfect uh like counterpoint double feature with Cabin in the Woods because they're both ultimately about what goes into a movie. And right. And I love that element of it. And, well, you know, they both took totally different approaches. Cabin in the Woods, of course, is so much more accessible. But the the deconstruction of what the audience uh, goes through and what they expect from a movie, they were both approached in really interesting ways by those two films. I think Holy Motors in particular, because it was so jarring. But to me, that's what Holy Motors was all about, is this is, this is how you make a movie in, in surreal land. Right. Holy yeah. Motors kind of, was more accepted than anything Gaspar Noe has done. What's that? More, more Holy Motors more? has been more commonly accepted than anything Gaspar Noe has done, or however you pronounce his last name. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gaspar Noe. Yeah. yeah, he's uh he's quite the experience. That guy. I have to be in the mood to watch his movies, but. Um, yeah, he has, I like him. I know you don't like him, Stephen, but I I yeah, like him. The only stuff, thing I, I really liked about Irreversible is that how it was told, like you would tell somebody in a conversation. Right, right. I mean, the but whole his, structure you know, of the film was like, how would you tell everyone the details? Like, hey man, did you hear Joe bashing somebody's head? Why? Right. Well, his <laughs> almost dead. Da da da, and so on from there. Right. But you yeah. know he hasn't he hasn't made a, a film that's really accessible yet. I mean, even comparing him to what we're talking about with David Lynch, it's like even if 
you don't understand what's going on in a David Lynch movie. There are, you know, you, you, there, are, there are opportunities to catch your breath and just kind of, you know, Lynch always, uh, you know, there's always comedic elements to his movies and, you know, scenes that are slow, usually set to like some jazzy Angelo Badalamente, uh, you know, yeah. you're snapping. Well, the jazz, Lynch, you know. outside of uh, Eraserhead, all of his stuff has really been commercially acceptable. The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, uh, Wild at Heart. Yeah. Highway. Those were not small art films. Well, they, no, they were art films that were accessible, but yeah. I, I would definitely place them in, in as art house films. But they are, they were definitely something that you know David Lynch uses. He uses conventional storytelling techniques to to bring you into his crazy batshit world. So. It, they feel accessible, but when it was over, a lot of times you just feel like your 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 sanity has just been beat up and thrown out in the ditch. The, but the one, uh, Inland Empire was kind of a, to me, Inland Empire was it was David Lynch going back to batshit crazy. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like that that to me seems like his craziest uh, film to date. And uh, if if for no other reason, like what the hell is going on with those rabbits? What are those rabbits doing? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that hey, one of the first film he's ever done that he basically paid for it out of his own pocket? Well, he paid for it out of our pockets. I helped pay for rabbits personally. Um, he uh, he, it was kind of a crowdfunding thing he did uh, back when he first launched DavidLynch.com. He said, yeah. "Every penny I make, every penny I make from from the members on this website, I'm putting into making films on my own." And rabbits was the first thing he made with that money. Yeah. Now, the only thing I can think that it might now tell me if I've 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 asked some people about this, but no one else seems to know what I'm talking about. Wasn't there some old wise tale once upon a time? Like if you if you had a rabbit and you handed it to a, a woman that you thought was pregnant, then you put the rabbit back. If the rabbit died within a certain amount of time, wasn't there some old wise tale? I'm sure I've heard something. Yeah, like that, that used before. that's what they used to call pregnancy tests. Yeah, right? but I thought that was with urine. I thought that was the no, woman's that's urine what that they, they would call them. That's the name for it. He's calling rabbit tests. Right, and but I thought they I actually just... gave the the woman's urine to the rabbit. I was just wondering if I know that that was originally a short film, and then he built you know Inland Empire, uh, not around it necessarily, but he inserted it in there. I was always I always wonder when I watch that movie if that's supposed to have some kind of indication about like whether Laura Dern's character is supposed to be pregnant or not, you know, the rabbits right. seem to be seem to be reacting to some uh like they're in a sitcom, you know, there's an audience and they they react to noises, strange noises and I'm just you know, I, I just kinda wonder. That's my yeah. bizarre little take on it, but I can't prove it one way or the other, obviously. No, but that's an interesting observation, though. I never even thought of it that way. Yeah. Huh. I think one of my that's best cool. theater experiences probably was getting to see uh, Field in England on the big screen. Getting to see how oh. shell-shocked everybody else was after it was over. <laughs> I'll bet. For the first two minutes of uh, the credits, you could you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> it was just it was sitting there in stunned silence, like, what the fuck did we just see? 
yeah, it's really know. interesting. That one, that one kind of starts off making you think that you're following a narrative film before it really branches off into surrealism. You think you're watching a historical drama, and you are, but but then the film like it takes that turn, which we all know is the point. I don't want to spoil too many things because that movie's a fun journey, but. Once it takes yeah. that turn, you you are completely under its grip, and you are being assaulted and forced to go where it takes you. And that's that's one of the things I like most about surrealist films is they yank the rug out from under you and pull you around, and then you're kind of left to pick up the pieces at the end. And I like films that challenge me that way. Oh, and if you didn't think that the guy who made uh, A Field in England loved the Joe Dawarski, look at the way the hero is dressed in the last. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, that that totally reminded up, me like, of Yodorovsky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that obviously that movie has seems to share a lot of similarities with, you know, Kubrick again, like 2001, you know, very, yeah. very similar, like how, you know, it's, it seems to start off being about one thing and concentrates on it pretty heavily and then just spins out of control, you know. Yeah, Kubrick was unique is then when he put surrealism in his films, he used silence to really right. put it across rather than the noisy, like some people try to put noisy chaos in it. Yeah, he well, just cranks up he just cranks up the room tone and leaves it there. Yeah. That again, like going back to like Gaspar No, like, yeah, he hit that's his take on surrealism is it's bright and it's loud and you see weird things occasionally, you know? And the camera goes upside down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me, Jasper No Way was influenced a lot by Alan Parker's Pink Floyd the Wall. Oh, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yep, I can see that. For I sure. see a lot of, uh, I see a lot of, um, like, early experimental underground film influence on No Way, like stuff from Kenneth Anger and things like that, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's, yeah he's definitely... Definitely a Kenneth Anger That would fan. be an awesome time to be alive yeah. where you could just go to people's, like, flats or somewhere, like, we're going to show you this film. And they put on something like Keith Anger's Lucifer Rising or something like that. Right. Yeah, check out my new movie. Mick Jagger helped me make it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Come to the church basement this weekend. This new film, this filmmaker's got this new movie called Pink Flamingos. You should, you're definitely going to like it. Yeah. You know, I got a good friend who lived in San Francisco during the heyday of of uh, of the underground film movement in the 60s and 70s. And interestingly enough, his job at the time was delivering groceries to wealthy junkies, like people who were shut up in their apartment and too high to go anywhere. They would pay him to bring them food and coffee and stuff, and that's how he made his living at the time. But he fell in with the whole underground film crowd and got to go to some Kenneth Anger screenings and stuff. Wow. That would have been, been a been... great time to be around. Yeah. Right. I would love to have seen when the silent film crowd got their first viewing of, uh, I'm just going to call it by the English title, An Andalusian Dog. Yes, yeah. Russian Andalou. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The Louis just imagine Bingo the first and... time they watch this movie and they're seeing well, this is weird. Then all of a sudden, why is that girl tied to the chair? <laughs> and then I was like, trying Damn, to... raise a oh, <laughs> I was trying to explain that movie to someone the other day, and then I was like, you know what? Just just take my copy of it. I can't. 
I, I can't explain. Just yeah, go watch it. There's some films you describe, and other ones you just go strap yourself to the chair and just watch. Like, you can't compare that movie to anything. You can't say, well, you know, it, you can't do a it's like so-and-so meets so-and-so. Like, you, there's just no, I mean, no. I you, you know, there, you can you say, can say oh, well. You could say it's like Benwell meets Dolly, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the best description. And most people look at you like, what are you talking Oh, I know who Salvador Dolly is. I have no idea who you're talking about, this other guy, you know. So, Ironic, that's right. the one I considered the second uh, surrealist film ever made. Which? Age of the Old, Age Dark? of Love. The one that oh, Rod Dorn, yeah. Yeah. What I heard yeah, is I- that the best story I heard about that, they said at the very end of the very first screening, all the Catholics in the theater sitting in the front were rioting because <laughs> of the end shot of Jesus walking out doing solo. And then right. they pan to the back, and there was Dolly and Buñuel giggling like little kids. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because the people were getting that angry and right. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. My, my... My favorite of his films is definitely uh, the Exterminating Angel. That movie is surreal. I mean, it get, it's kind, I guess it's kind of dull at times, you know. And it, and it, but it goes back to what we were saying before about repeating itself, you know. I mean, that's clearly the point of it. It's, oh yeah, you know, a, just a never-ending cycle, you know. But yep. yeah, that that was one of the first, uh, you know, one of the earliest films I ever after I saw. Uh, Andalou, I was like, all right, I'll check out some more movies by this guy. And then I was like, that was one of the ones, one of those you watch it, and then I'm just like, what the hell did I just watch? That was yeah. a weird freaking movie. <laughs> Bonio was the one to add intelligence to surrealism, surrealistic films. What's that? Show that you could just be more than just put weird images and string them together. Right again, there, you know, there's a point to that movie that I get, you know, like that, uh, as well as not that his later films were as surreal, but like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and that obscure object of desire, like, you know, the seeing a movie like The Exterminating Angel or Diary of a Chambermaid, and not even knowing much about the politics of of the region where he was from, I understood the point that he was trying to make, you know. Right. I mean, that was a big thing I was worried about, uh, you know, when I started watching, uh, you know, um, when I started watching some, like, uh, a field in England. I was like, do I know enough about the English Civil War that I'm going to understand what they're, what's going on, you know, or like Dance of Reality. When, it, when I first started that, I was like, what war are they talking about? What's going on? I don't know enough about Chile's role in World War II. I'm like, am I even going to be able to follow the plot of this movie? Who are these, who are these people, you know? Right. <laughs> but, who are they and what do they well, want? Well, England deals more with England's literary history than its real history. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I just, you know, those are the thoughts. Sometimes I just get terrified by my ignorance about, like, other, like, other the history of other countries, you know. Like, I know a lot about other cultures, but I don't know a lot of historical information about other countries, you know. Especially, like, I'm like, what was Chile's role in World War II? I don't know. Like, I don't remember ever ever learning that in high school or college. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> There's another great thing about some of these films is they, they will send you to the damn library to learn stuff so you can help understand them better. Like, right? I like, mean, I, we haven't I brought would... him up yet, so I got I to gotta bring him up because he's my favorite filmmaker and I think probably one of the greatest surrealists who ever lived is Peter Greenaway. Every time I see a new Peter Greenaway film, I end up learning so much more about both, you know, world history and art history. That it's I was going to say art history for sure. Like, yeah. If I was going to put his movies in art, I think my favorite art film of his is probably Murder by Numbers. Drowning by Numbers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a Drowning brilliant by Numbers. Because of how he slips in the numbers and all that. I just think that was just beautiful. Yes, it is. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I, uh, I that's know. the one movie Maybe that... Maybe Making that, is his most dangerous film. What's that? The Baby of Making is his most dangerous film since they're even scared to release it over here. Yeah, yeah, I got the uh, I got the Dutch Blu-ray of that, which looks beautiful, by the way. Um, but uh, yeah, Baby of Macan is is definitely his probably his toughest to take movie, but also one of his most brilliant. And that one kind of has a parallel at at the ending. It has a very strong parallel with the Holy Mountain, where you know mm-hmm. the, the the layer of awareness is revealed, and we realize that we are exposed as being an audience to to an artificial reality. They both kind of end on the same note. Sorry to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought uh, I thought his his most like I guess art if we're talking about like you know like art uh, the cook the thief his wife and her lover. The the way oh, the, the colors transi- the way the colors transition yeah. in that movie and you know oh, yeah. the very like and jarring images like uh, the scene where they're hiding naked in in with all the like rotten meat you know like and just like, right. everything everything in that movie feels really staged like it was intended to be a painting or like a like a motion you know like a motion yeah, picture I guess exactly you know that scene that scene in the back of the uh, in the back of the truck where they're being carted away among all that rotten meat that, that was staged to be a mimicry. I can't remember the painter, uh, but it was staged to be an homage of that famous painting of Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden of Eden. So oh, it, the, the shot is set up to look exactly like that. And that's what I love about Greenaway is he, he, he knows so much about art history and he brings both the history of the world and the history of art into his stories and in such a seamless way. Well, when uh, Cronenberg made Dead Ringers, one of the first things he did after getting the entire cast together was set them down and gave them a screening of his head and two knots. Awesome. (laughs) Well, that's an appropriate film to show someone before you make Dead Ringers. Yeah, Yeah. Zed and Two Knots, that's my favorite Greenaway film. In fact, when I uh, when I went to Amsterdam, really a good DVD presence in America. Period. No, no, he hasn't. He, in fact, the best print of the Cook, the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover that's available is the Blu-ray from Mexico. That is, I mean, he just he doesn't have a strong presence at all in the U.S., which is too bad. But it's understandable. I think when he came out in the '90s, everybody was so into Lynch they considered him too too arty and obtuse for their taste. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, the only reason to cook the thief, the wife, and his lover was because it was the poster boy for the battle against the MPAA. 
Right. And also it had it had some big name actors. You had your Michael Gambon, your Helen Mirren, and Tim Roth was starting to become popular right then. So it had cast factor and also it's it's the most accessible story he's ever done. You know, so it's it's just a classic revenge tale told in a very artful fashion, but it's not necessarily a very surreal film in and of itself. It's you know, it's more of a very artsy drama. But it does share some of the similarities we were talking about, uh, you know, with like uh, with like uh, only God forgives, and you know where the and uh, Santa Sangri, where the color palette is uh, adds a lot to the surrealism, you know. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that's true. It's, and it's, the color palette is is very much an indicator of what tone the scene will shift to. Right. Right. I and, remember uh, seeing it on VHS and on cable, and I was like, this is a very dull-looking movie. Which one? I had to cook the pizza, cook, wife and his lover. Cook thief? You didn't like it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I liked it, but Have like you... I said, when I seen it, first seen it back in the day, it was on VHS, and the Merrimack uh, Hill Prince, and they, those, the colors were muted on it. Yeah, they were. They were very muted. They were either oversaturated or muted. Like the red bled horribly and everything else looked washed out. That's a pity because that's that's an instance where if you get a bad print of something like a Greenaway film or a Hodorowsky film or even, you know, well, we haven't seen horrible prints from Nicholas Vinding Rafen, but... But if you don't get a good print and if the colors are muted, you're missing part of the story, essentially. Because the colors help tell the story. And, you know, that's why a good uh, a good quality print is so essential with some of these films, because the color palette is a character. Yeah, and like uh, Holy Mounting, uh, when it first came out on DVD, did you see how horrible they did the whites and blacks on the opening scene on uh, the Holy Mountain? Are you talking about the uh, the first DVD release in Italy or yeah, the, the one in Anchor the box Bay. set? The one in the box oh, set. Oh, yeah, the Anchor Bay the one. First... Yeah. yeah. It, it was an improvement over the Italian DVD, but, yeah, it was still a big problem. It didn't really get yeah. proper until the Blu-ray release. Yeah, because the blacks and the whites in that scene, it just bled out everywhere. And you just barely – that's all your eyes were attracted to was those tiles in the background. It's kind of sad, you know, because we're it's it's almost like we're going back. You know, we're talking about the dawn of the VHS era when you know it wasn't about people. Co- it wasn't necessarily about people collecting movies. It was more about studios like, oh, here's another way we can make money. You know, let's just throw out whatever copy of this we have laying around, and people will buy it up. You know, I thought we were kind of transitioning away from that as DVD became more popular, and you started seeing. You know, not that they didn't do it with VHS towards the end with special editions and whatnot, but with DVD, it really seemed like, all right, now we're getting these really good quality copies of these movies and, you know, with director's commentaries and, oh, it's got a little book in it that's got interviews with the cast. And now it seems like they're kind of over it again where there's so many DVD companies now that are just throwing out, you know, and it's sad. Like, obviously, if you go to the drugstore and you buy a dollar DVD with a, you know, a Clint Eastwood movie on it, you know you're not getting the highest quality. But like right. you're saying, if I'm going to go out and buy a DVD, you know, some special edition DVD of Holy Mountain, then I want it to be special, 
you know, not yes. just not just the print that they had laying around. The, oh, no, oh, here's a crappy cropped print with you know horrible coloring. Let's just throw it out, and someone will pay thirty bucks for it. You know, right? And it's and it well, seems like was, the Blu-ray was the first time that Jodorowsky himself did the color correction and all the work on it. Right. For the uh, Blu-ray. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and it and it shows. It was such a vast improvement. It's like night and day. He obviously and, uh, wasn't like uh you know, uh, Kubrick who uh, was rumored to sit and watch every reel of every copy of his film before it got sent out to make sure that the colors were right or <laughs> Yeah, and he whatever. sent those those letters to the theater owners saying you must have a bulb that is within this age and you must show it at these many candles or yeah. uh, foot candles and just, yeah, all those crazy, you have to mask it this way. And it was weird because when Kubrick was alive and his films were coming out on DVD, he almost took a, an approach of, I don't give a fuck. You're not allowed to letterbox them. You're not allowed to color correct them. Yeah, I'm not going to oversee them. Yeah, you get it on full screen only. Yeah. And, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, the world... Uh, David Lynch, when he went insane with the first edition DVD of The Straight Story. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like the world got finally got to see Kubrick's films as they were meant to be seen only after he died, because while he was alive, he wouldn't... He had this such an animosity toward home video, he wouldn't allow any special work to be done on his films. So people got crap copies because of him. It was really weird, but he's a strange guy. <laughs> it is really weird because, well, you know, I was just, I was thinking about this earlier when uh, you were saying, uh, you know, that Cronenberg uh, was is was always right on the, the cusp of new technology. Like, have you ever seen footage from inside Kubrick's house? Just big rooms just filled with, like, cameras and VCRs and computers. Like, he was he was always yeah. looking for the next thing. Mm-hmm. And then when the next, then when the next thing was there, okay, we've got this new, you know, we've got the DVD player now. We can digitally, you know, release your films. And eh, no, now I'm not into no. it. Yeah, that, and that's that's such a what? so bizarre from someone like him. Yeah, it really well, is. Not y'all was when they showed his script room of all the scripts that he had written that he just abandoned the project. Right. It yeah, looked bad, like, like something out of 2001. Yeah. Yeah, room an entire room in his house is dedicated just to all the research he did for the Napoleon film, and it fills a room, shelf after shelf after box. Just one movie yeah, that never got made. Well, I've seen the footage of that. Kids, he wasn't even allowed to hit DVD period till after he died. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that was that was a weird aspect of him because, like Nate was saying, it was very contrary to how he was with other technologies. But I don't know. At least we get to see his movies proper now. And you know, well, David Lynch has always been anti-technology for a long while too. But I think he's just come around. Period. Yeah. Once he once he got a once he got a hold of a video camera and shot Inland Empire, his his entire outlook changed. Yeah. Right. He's, yeah. he's in love with video now. Are you like you mean I could shoot a movie for pennies? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And then he stops shooting movies. Uh. Yeah, that's, I was just—I was thinking about that the other day. I had to go back and see how long it had been since Inland Empire came out because I was like, 
if you look on his IMDb page, he's done a ton of stuff since that movie, but no feature-length films. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and he's, and, he's uh, mostly done, like, commercials and music videos and stuff. Right. But now we're finally going to get eight Twin Peaks episodes out of him next year, so that's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be I interesting to see funny now. is they... They asked him when Inline Empire come out. He said, "If you had these digital cameras back then, how would it change about what would it change about Eraserhead?" And he just looked and said, "It wouldn't take three years to film." <laughs> right. Poor <laughs> <laughs> no, Jack Nance had mean, to have that haircut for three years. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, but um, it'll be interesting to see in light of what we're talking about, like how much more accepted. Uh, you know, surrealism has become in the mainstream with, you know, commercials and television shows. It'll be interesting to see how much, of course, now Twin Peaks has a huge cult following. You know, it's been around for 25 years, so they've already got a built-in audience. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, the new converts, you know. It really will. Well, in a way, it seems like... I bet a lot of it's going to be like caffeine-free Coke and then when they get the stuff with caffeine in it. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, you know, again, and again, I think a lot of people are going to come to this the same the same thing I was talking about. You know, like so many people that I know who have a have a uh, peripheral interest in surrealism, they like things like Tim and Eric. They like things, you know, they like those, you know, those weird like comedy things, and they don't really associate. You know, when they watch a, a movie that's with that's more serious that has those surreal elements, they're like, "Oh, I don't like that. It's weird. I don't get it." You know, uh-huh. which is which is well, strange like, to you know, me because you know, worst I don't. When people come to me and they've never seen one of his films before, and they're like, "What's your favorite one of his?" I said, "The Holy Mountain." Oh, should I see that first? No, 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 no absolutely Sangre not. The one you should <laughs> watch first. Yeah, start with Santa Sangre. <laughs> Yeah, it works you know, way up. I've, yep. I've tried to turn I've tried to turn people on to Santa Sangri, and most people are just like, "So wait, he, is he is he in love with his mom? Are they sleeping together? I don't I don't like this. This is weird." <laughs> you know, that's, that element of it right there is too much for him. Like, no, no, this is this is weird. He and his yeah. mom have a weird. They, they have a weird relationship. Yeah, like, Santa Sangri, all that stuff with his mother, it's too weird. I'm gonna go watch Psycho. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is basically the same movie, <laughs> just yeah. pulled differently. <laughs> hey, come on, Mrs. Bates had both of her arms. Now, don't exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> totally different movies. Totally different. They, they, they were mummified and and you know withered up and mummified, but they yeah. were both there. He said he was going to have a shot of the mother's mummified body, but. He thought it was just saying the same thing twice. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, though, you got to give Norman Bates props. He kept that body in good shape for a long, long time. Hey, that's what amateur taxidermists can do, man. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so uh, are either of you guys fans of Nicholas Rogue? Oh, I love Rogue. I yeah, didn't I tell you, uh, uh, did you see what uh, Criterion's uh, clue for this month was? No. 
it was a picture of a guy with a hand over his face, and the other one with his exact same face except with the eyes open, and it said, look now. Ooh. Finally. Yeah. Nice. So finally next nice. year we're getting a good DVD of Don't Look Now. Oh, that's good news. I'm happy about that. I that's was so I excited it. when when Criterion finally put out uh when Criterion finally put out Bad Timing Essential Obsession. I was hoping that would open a door for them, you know, cuz that was their second Nicholas Rogue release, and I was hoping we'd see more. I'd love to see a Criterion release of like Track 29. Or They've done it before on Laserdisc. Criterion? Yeah. No, Criterion never released Track 29. I thought they did on Laserdisc. Nope, that was a, that was a, uh Elite Entertainment release, the, the offshoot of oh, Image okay. when they started doing the uh, the deluxe editions. Yeah. But, uh, but I think they got um, uh Don't Look Now as part of their Paramount deal. Yeah, probably. But I'd love to see a Criterion release of Don't Look Now. That would be outstanding. Yeah, because the Paramount DVD is just bare bones as can be. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'd like to see a, That's a quality re-release of Eureka as well. If you try to find out too much about it, it'll ruin your first time viewing of it. Absolutely, yeah. You should never read anything about that movie because everything that somebody writes about it gives away the ending. Yeah. And the funny yeah. story about Don't Look Now is that when it came out, British Lion, the guy had just bought British Lion in 72, and the two films that he had left, he hated. He thought were the dumbest films ever. So he took the first film and cut it down from 103 minutes to 80 minutes and just dumped it and Don't Look Now on a double feature. And that's how we got the double feature of the Wicker Man, and Don't Look Now. Two films that British Lion hated and thought were stupid. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> they just dumped them out in the arc. They said, nobody wants to see these movies. They're dumb. Wow, they were so wrong on both cases. <laughs> and the lucky thing is that when Paramount was seeing it, and they were like, you don't like this film? Uh, okay, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll, we'll release this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Criterion release of performance would be quite nice too. I heard the Warner Brothers Blu-ray performance is per is uh pretty much perfect. Oh, is it? I haven't got the Blu-ray yet. Yeah. I, I've got the uh, I've got the DVD that came out a couple of years ago, but yeah, with the cut I haven't line. got the Blu-ray yet. What's that? With the cut line. The cut line. Yeah. Uh, Long Live Britannia had to end a message to Turner. It is missing for some reason from the DVD. Is it really? I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. Weird. And I just watched it a couple months ago. I didn't notice that line was missing. That's I a wish movie that I've purchased they would a bunch of times. a good DVD of uh, going to the other half of uh, performance, Donald Kamel. I wish you would get more good DVD Blu-rays over here. Yeah, like a director's cut of Wild Side would be nice. And uh, uh his friend put it out. I forget I don't know if he's still selling it, but it got put out. Yeah, I I but it was never released in the US. It was released in England. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, what's, what's her name? China Kong, his amazing widow. amazing Blu-ray of uh, White and I this year. Is that one? Is that one region free? No, it's region two, sadly. Damn it! Okay, that means I got to buy a player because I am going to yeah. own that. I have to have that that Arrow it release. It comes with uh, the eye. ultimate. It comes with the uh, ultimate uh, performance. Oh, that's on there. Yeah. Oh, nice. I love that documentary. Yeah, yeah, I love that documentary. The only place I've seen it is on, uh, on like, Bravo and YouTube. Yeah. I was kind of hoping Did, after uh, we... Did Warner Archive put out the Touchables? Yeah, they did. They did. Which I oh, still haven't crap. seen. That means we'll get a good Blu-ray of it. Yeah. What were you going to say I... there, Nate? I was just saying, I was, I was kind of hoping after we started transferring over everything over to Blu-ray that we could do away with the whole Region 1 and 2 thing, you know? That yeah, would me be, too. That, that would be nice. Oh, the story about that is uh, HD DVD was region-free. That's why most of the studios would not do it. Mm, that's why it failed, huh? Yeah, because they love keeping that region coding to make sure that they can sell a DVD at least four times. Right. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's pretty annoying. Like, because you know me, I just I try not to let that thing get in my way, so I always save up and get the region free players. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't have a region free Blu-ray yet, which needs to happen because I already have two Peter Greenaway films that I can't watch on Blu-ray because I don't have a player for them yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you know what's sad? Yeah. Every year, Criterion begs Warner Brothers to give them the devils. And they won't do it. To give them what? The devils. Oh, yeah. Nope. They're holding on to that one for some reason. And they hate it. They don't get it. Because they hate it. They physically, physically hate that movie. One of the heads at Warner's that's still in power, one of the old men, just says uh-huh. that there is no way in hell that the devil is coming out before I die. Well, hurry up and die. <laughs> it's part of uh, what 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 I call uh, Warner Brothers' infamous Band Three. There's a fourth one that I can't remember. The ones that I know for sure that they hated hate are cruising. Uh-huh. Performance and the devil. Yep. Yep. They considered those embarrassments. Yeah. And for a while yep. they considered uh, Eyes Wide Shut an embarrassment too. But I guess the the overwhelming cash because dollar of how, uh, convinced them. Uh, what Kubrick was mad because they tampered with his film. Yep. Yeah, but. Finally, that got a decent release and an uncut release in the U.S. It took long enough, but it finally yeah, happened. Yeah, and everybody's like, you mean they covered that up? I know, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, again, though, you know, it's like as time marches on, it's like, well, what seemed so scandalous to the studios when Eyes Wide Shut came out is just like, eh. I mean, have you watched cable television lately? You know? Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like, it's so ridiculous, like... You know, you know, you always hear people talk about something, you know, about being on the wrong side of history. These things aren't even like, you know, we're not talking about life or death decisions here. It's just like, but tampering with an artist's work for some, for, 
something so inconsequential. Yeah. It's just always ridiculous. Well, the first yeah. time I seen performance, it was I was like, we just got in a big satellite dish, and it was like, oh boy, the Playboy Channel's unscrambled. Oh my God, they're having <laughs> movies that are infamous. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so dirty. And guess <laughs> what? We're, guess what? Were to the two films they showed in the double feature that was uh, performance and Polanski's Macbeth. <laughs> I didn't get porn, but Lord, I got something better. Yeah, but then you were like, "What am I going to do with all this lube now?" Yeah. <laughs> That's your mom. Playboy would actually show real movies. Yeah. Along with the software crap. Yeah, it's funny, and I I first saw performance on HBO, and when I was I think I was seventeen, and it, they showed it on HBO, and I fell in love with it. Fortunately, I recorded it. And then I ordered it through my local video store to purchase from Warner. And I got the VHS and found out, holy shit, this is cut to hell. The The official Warner release at the time was not the director's cut, yet what HBO was showing was the director's cut. So I spent yeah. like forty bucks on a on a VHS, and I was like, "Damn it, I'm never gonna watch this because it's all chopped up." Well, it's like the devil. We got an official DVD, but why buy it? It's the butchered, so-called British X-rated cut. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a middle ground. It's not the it's not the final director's I never cut. Understood. They found every lost scene that they could, put it back in the film. We had a perfect uncut print. Except yep. for the bone scene at the end. Right. And but you have to wonder. Yeah. Okay, we found it, but we're not letting you put the rape of Christ scene in. Right. Exactly. So you're you're getting a a a more complete cut, but we're not giving you a fully complete cut. But again, yeah. you know, this is one of those things where it's like, I mean, remember how pissed off people were? I mean, not the Last Temptation of Christ. The passion mm-hmm. of the Christ, you know, these movies that people get so worked up over, and then it, it blows over. It's you know what? I guess what after uh, after they put out the the complete uncut version of of the Devils, uh, there's not going to be a rise in violent crime, or uh, you know, no one's going to burn down a church because of it. You know, it's just right. It's just. It's, I also think the real message of the Devils is what scares them. Yeah, what do you right? think it is? Most Authority that it, most the people that are in charge that supposedly there to protect you are really blasphemous heathens who are out to screw you over for their own means. And the ones yeah. that you should embrace to protect you are the ones that you're going to screw over because you think they are not doing good for your own means. It's yeah. just so bizarre, though, because there's not a single Ken Russell movie that doesn't have you know, something like, you know, nuns masturbating or, you know, crucified <laughs> goat head gods, you know, it's like there's... Yeah. Religion, now, there's even blasphemy. a PG-rated movie like Aldrich States has some very blasphemous images. Yeah. Right? Yeah, or even <laughs> even uh, his film about Gustav Mahler. Mahler. I mean, it's just, it's a story about a, uh, you know, a composer, but there's so much, like, sacrilegious religion. Uh, sacro-religious imagery in it, like, you know, Mueller as Christ ripping himself off the cross in anger. I mean, that's Ken Russell for you. He was the he was the Catholic bad boy. So even when he's doing a straightforward biopic about 
about a composer. He's he's got that crazy imagery. Any I mean, Jesus. That one's just insane as can be. That's my favorite Ken Russell film, Listomania. <laughs> Hands down. It's like any time the script came across his desk, he was like, I like it, but is there any way I could, uh, you know, crucify somebody or, uh, you know. Right. <laughs> can, uh, <laughs> can we get. <laughs> hey, I-, I got a cool idea for this one. How about we have Christ sacrificing a goat to his pagan god? That'd be cool, right? Uh, yeah. Ken, this, uh, well, look at the film Ken, he did for uh, HBO. I was like, I didn't even. I watched it. But I missed the first, the beginning credits and the end. The one talking about the, Prisoner you know, of Honor? Talking about. Yeah. Prisoner of Honor? Yeah. And I watched the whole thing, and I was like, this is good. This director might do something someday. It didn't <laughs> click in my mind, even if it had all of his main guys, that this normal, very good movie was Ken Russell. Yeah. I think I told you before, the first movie of his I ever saw was Tommy. And, again, a movie that I was way too young to see when I saw it because I did not – I didn't understand it at all, but I knew I liked it. I was like, right. I want to see, see more of this guy's stuff, you know. I mean, talk, yeah. about a movie, talk about a movie that's just, like, steeped in surrealism. But, again, oh. you know, I mean, it's uh, – again, it's, you can like, follow it's, it. it's accessible. Yeah, you know, you can follow the story. Yeah. It's always annoying me that the who who – took uh, the soundtrack of the Ken Russell movie out of print and won't let it back in print. Yeah, I know. I the the Ken so Russell I love soundtrack. Lose Tommy, but give me Tina Turner's version of the Acid Queen over Pete Townsend's any day. Any day. I did you not know that they pulled that from release. They they've suppressed that from release. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm glad Same I got the CD. As, uh, there was an official soundtrack album to the wall that Roger Waters got pulled out of release because he didn't like, uh, what's his name for the Boomtown Rats singing? Oh, uh, Geldof? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that that was suppressed either. Huh. Uh, I guess guess my head's in the sand because I bought them when they came out. You know, I got the soundtracks and then I didn't realize they'd been pulled from release. Too bad. Yeah. Most people really albums. wouldn't even know the soundtrack because the difference is is one has the poster of the movie on it and the other one's just the wall. Right. The white and black. Huh. Nope. Those are both albums that I was just randomly stumbled across at thrift stores on vinyl, so I guess that's cool. Yeah. I didn't realize mm-hmm. I knew that you couldn't get Tommy anymore, but I didn't realize that you couldn't get the wall. Hmm. That's well, weird. not the so original you, wall, but the soundtrack to the movie. Right. You can still get the Pink Floyd the album, just not the soundtrack. it has two songs unique to it that's not on the studio album. Right. <laughs> and that's well, another that is, one well. I was like, I would probably love to see with an audience with the sound really pulled full bore like it was supposed to. Yeah. Like when I got the DVD you know that, uh, with the full, you know, with the full mix, I know some DVDs like warning this DVD is mixed loud, and I was like, yeah, 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 cranked up my system <laughs> a little bit, and then when I was like, quiet, 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 yeah, then boom, I kicked the door, and it was like blew me back. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys know that uh, 
you guys know what the first ever Dolby Quadraphonic theatrical presentation was? No. Wasn't it Earthquake? Nope. It was Listomania. Well, there you go. Oh, Listomania, yeah. (laughs) Yep, that was the first movie ever presented in Dolby Surround Quadraphonic Sound, and they had tons of trouble with it because they had to ship the sound system with the print. So there were frequently, like, a lot of breakdowns in theaters because it wasn't hooked up right or a piece of equipment would malfunction, but that was the first movie to ever be put out in quadraphonic Dolby Surround. And then, you know, Tommy came out later the same year, and they had a lot more success with it, with the sound system on that. But, yeah, Listomania was the first. It's funny that you guessed Earthquake, Stephen, because I, I just watched that movie the other day, and the, the version that I have of it, of it has a warning at the beginning that it's, that it's very loud. There are some scenes that are very loud, and you shouldn't, you know, you might damage it. It's an old uh, VHS copy of it. So it says damage yeah. your sound system, you know, from like back in the days when I guess everyone just ran their stereo. <laughs> you ran your stereo yeah, through your cool, TV. But, for, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't damage your... Uh, don't damage the DVD of Earthquake really doesn't have that oomph to the sound. No, well, that's why I thought it was funny that you guessed that because, like I said, mine's an old VHS copy anyway, so it's not like yeah. it really has great great sound quality. I basically bought it because I found it at a thrift store and it was in re- the the cover was in really nice condition and it has the original poster art on it, oh, you know. Nice. So it, was, it was neat, so I thought I I was like, oh, this will be a nice piece for the collection. And then I was like, well, hell, I haven't watched this movie forever. Let's throw it on and see what happens. Yeah, I, they, I haven't was, seen that movie was, since I was like twelve. Yeah, you yeah. want to talk about surreal? Look up the cast. <laughs> there's there's some surrealism for you right there. <laughs> Like, it must have been oh, great we haven't gotten to Asian surrealism. Has anybody even seen uh, The Boxer's Omen? No. No. It, oh, wait. It's the Kung Fu movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, the I, one that I've opens seen. with Bolo Young kicking someone in the mouth so hard they spit milk. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is so insane. It changes what it is every five minutes. The first five minutes, it's a kung fu film, your basic kickboxing film. Then it turns to a softcore porn. Then he pukes up eels. Then it turns into a bizarre kung fu battle. What year did that come out? Uh, eighty-one. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it's a Shaw Brothers movie, right? Yeah. I, I haven't, thought, I haven't thought about that movie forever. What's it called again? The Boxer's Omen. Oh. Boxer's Omen. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that. I've just never, never seen of it. Seen it. And of course, the one that's the one surreal movie that is banned in Japan because it, they hate it, and that's uh, Horrors of Malformed Men. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that the same also known as Crippled Masters? That's the same one, right? No, it's a pure ishi film from '68, and it starts out weird, then it goes over to Ireland and it goes into full surrealism. Yeah, yeah I, I remember the Boxer's Omen gets really weird. The yeah. Boxer's Omen gets really weird because he's like he's like a Buddhist and then he like doesn't he do some weird like black magic thing because his brother Yeah, they have a black magic battle and it was like one second it was like 
uh, animated letters appear all over his body. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'll have to rewatch then, that. I haven't seen. And then the very last 30 seconds of audio from Phantasm kicks in. Right. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> that was really. And then oh, this that's crazy guy in the, ma- in the face paint does a magic spell that ends up with him flipping off the guy and saying, Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, and it's one of those things I showed the someone like, oh, my God, what the hell is this? <laughs> and that one's still there. Like I said, it changes what it is every five minutes, so you're really on edge all the time because you don't know what insane shit you're going to come your way. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's that's officially on my list now. i got to check that out. Because <laughs> I've only, I've only read about it. I've never never actually watched it, so I'll have to pick it up. But Wars of Malformed Men is really good. It's based on basically nice. about three or four stories of Edegawa Rampos. Oh, that's right. That's what I read about it. Yeah. Yeah. Have either of you seen uh, Jigaku? No, it doesn't sound familiar. Oh. That's the first Hell film from 1960. And basically the first 40, first 10 minutes is you in a classroom and then describing the Buddhist hell, the Christian hell, the difference between them. And then we spend 40 minutes with these people we absolutely despise. They're just children doing every nasty thing. And then at the 45-minute mark, they die and go to hell. <laughs> isn't isn't that one a Criterion minutes, release? Yeah. Ah, okay. In the last 40 I've... minutes of just them... Going through all the torments of hell. It shows basically almost every Buddhist hell they can scram into the last 40 minutes. Oh, nice. That sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's good. Oh, I'll well, check that one out, too. After that, they started doing hell films. Right. Yeah, I remember yeah, we did that. And there's one that if you haven't seen, I will just be ashamed of you. And that's uh, 1974 or 75, I think, is Haosu. Oh, I yeah, love I was, Haosu. Yeah, I was just going to mention yeah. that. I was just, I was just going to say, I think you yeah. and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, because don't they have a Criterion version of that out now? Yeah. Yes, they do. They have a Blu-ray yeah. of it. It's pretty good. Yep. Because that's a movie that, that movie was really hard real to find. different ways that I've never seen before. It's like you're watching this normal scene, and all of a sudden you notice the corner guy goes, what the hell, is that just a cardboard cutout? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that movie was a great example of an artist completely unbound, just doing everything he wanted to do. And that, that and I know, I love. And the soundtrack is awesome you. too. Yeah, it is fantastic soundtrack. Yeah, I think I think the only reason I knew that that had a Criterion release is I think it was up on Hulu the other day when I was just flipping through the what's new on Hulu. I think they've got it up there. Nice. Well, the reason I think Criterion got it is because it became a very big cult film over here maybe four or five years, three or four years ago when it started hitting the circuit. And it's very difficult to find a copy of it, to find a good copy of it. I mean, I'm sure that's another... Well, I mean before, you know. Yeah, before it was. 
Yeah, that was one of those movies. That was I think another I had one to... you'd only get on the gray market, like a lot of Pasolini's early pre-solo films. Right, yep. which are now finally starting to get released, which is nice. Yeah, I think uh, Criterion has hinted they have the trilogy of. No, they've said they have the trilogy of life. Oh, do they? Yeah. So we'll probably be seeing that release from them pretty soon. Yeah, the ones that they've got, they've said they've got, but they haven't really put out yet is uh, they got the Brood. Yeah, and you can actually watch the Criterion print of the Brood on Hulu already. It's already up. Yeah, that's one thing. If you check Hulu, you'll see a lot of films that Criterion have that they really haven't done anything yet with yet. Exactly. Yeah, that's, so it that's does blow right, my mind, and right. just I'll never accept it. But they have in the Criterion Collection on Hulu. I was a teenage zombie. Yeah, they do. Yeah. That was that was kind of weird. That's yeah. what was like. I think that's one of the relics from the aborted. Uh, what is it they use for the box sets now with no extras? Eclipse line. Oh, the the eclipse. Yeah. That yeah. was going to be their cult line. Are they still doing Eclipse releases? I think they've done, I think, one, but not that many. Uh, oh, yeah, I haven't seen yeah, I haven't Because they did, like, a Louis Mall edition or something, didn't yeah. they, from the Eclipse series? Yeah. And and maybe, did, didn't they do a, a Robert Downey Sr. one? Yeah. Oh, that's another one we didn't haven't touched on yet. Robert Downey Sr. Yeah. <laughs> that, right. that could be a whole show right there. <laughs> yeah, Pewdie Slope is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. What was that movie he did where everybody played dogs in the pound? Pound. Oh, was it called Pound? Yeah. Ah, that's that's one I saw a long time ago on a gray market. I've been wanting to see again. I think they came out in the Criterion set. I'm not sure. I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look that up later and see, because that's one that always kind of stuck with me. Weird movie. Oh, but, the weirdest yeah, one I've seen on pay-per-view in the late '80s is the only reason I watch it is I've seen Paul Bartel's name on it. I was like, "Ooh, I uh-huh. like those are stuff." What is this? And I was like, "Paul Bartel's Private Parts." Oh yeah. I never that's- saw Private Parts. That's like two oh, short films. It, it is just you've seen it, right, Nate? Uh, it's 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 the one I'm thinking of. It's two short films, right? No, it's the one about the girl that goes into the hotel in Hollywood with her aunt. Huh? I don't think I don't know if I ever have seen it. Oh, it's very good, and it's one of those I'm like, why did the studio make this film? It's that. Outright bizarre, right? <laughs> Since we were talking I about, I mean, it has S and M gay priest, uh, a guy who's a peace setter next door, and then steals her bath water and injects it into a sex doll so he can have sex with it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of dark, dark, dark films. You're like, why did they spend money on this? Yeah. Well, you know, you always hear the stories about, like, you know, obviously we hear all these stories about how movies like Apocalypse Now and Taxi Driver got made, you know, Deer Hunter, you know, they were all, 
there was that time when, you know, Hollywood was willing to gamble on young directors with crazy ideas because, you know, you had a bunch of stuffy old white guys who had no idea what the kids were wanted, you know? Yeah, exactly. Throw, so they're throwing money. I think okay, Frank you got Zappa to... said it best is when he said music and movies, what goes with movies too, was a lot better when it was run by a bunch of old white men who really didn't know what the hell they were doing. So they would just throw anything against the wall to see if it stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you, you know, got a lot of really nice experimental films coming out from the big studios during that era. And it's it's kind of a mixed bag now because you know I I think about this sometimes with some of the stuff we were talking about earlier where it's like nowadays it's like the the people our age have have come up and you know decided oh well I you know I love movies I'm going to go into the movie business you know and there are still enough old white guys there that you might be able to pitch an idea and they'll say yeah sure what the hell we don't know what kids like nowadays you know <laughs> so right. it, it, it's a it's a balance it's a balance but still um you know you obviously they're shying away from a lot of really original ideas where you know we're seeing so many remakes and sequels but then again, there's so many more ways to get money to make a movie nowadays. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, crowdfunding. Video uh, on demand is now the know. new Wild Wild West. Yeah, yeah it right. is. It really is. And, uh, so like I said, yeah, and I mean, the fact that you can watch. video on demand before it even touched the theater. Right. Or while it's still in festivals, you can watch it for 10 bucks, which is, to me, that's a that's a treat being able to yeah, catch yeah. these films while they're still in the festival circuit. It's so bizarre when you look up, you know, you Google a movie that you've been waiting to see, and it's like available this Friday in Redbox and on demand and coming to theaters next month, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, I guess, you know. I guess right, I'll take it. If that's how you want to do it, it's your movie. Yeah. But. And, you know, living in a place where we have 350 screens and no art films or or uh, foreign films, the video on demand is just like is paradise for me because, you know, I live in Las Vegas. We got movie theaters everywhere, but they only show mainstream material, which makes sense. You know, tourists don't come to Las Vegas to see art films, but right. At the same time, it's 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 been like a wasteland for the most part. So now with this video on demand boom, I'm able to see all these weird ass movies that nobody else in my town wants to see. And sadly, we, one we of the best one. new films that came out this year, me and Tony seen at the festival, and that's the editor. Oh my God, that was so good. Yeah, you were uh, talking I about that. I and that movie I does. Like Astron Six, it does get surreal. Yes, yes. Especially it, it, the last twenty or so minutes, it goes full surreal. <laughs> they do. I mean, it's, the movie starts out as such a great and brilliant satire of like, you know, Giallo films, especially you know late seventies Giallo. But by the end, mm-hmm. it's it's taken on a whole new a whole new layer of surrealism. It's yeah, I cannot wait to own that movie and watch it over and over and over. See, Steven recommended it to me and I watched the trailer and I, I just took it I took it like uh, you know, that it was gonna be like that kind of more straightforward update. I didn't catch any hints of like surrealism. I don't know why they haven't put out a better trailer for it. 
Yeah, the yeah, trailer makes it, the trailer makes it look like it's more like um, more like we were talking about earlier, like House of the Devil. Like it's a more straightforward. Like this is my take on this this particular genre, you know, and I'm gonna do it as faithfully as I can, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and he I does that. They do that, but so much more as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. the trailer is kind of misleading for that. But again, it's you know, even trailer pretty much. I don't know why they haven't put out a better one. Yeah. 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 Does I, that I, have a release date yeah, on home video yet? They haven't sold it over here yet. Sadly, it's been playing festival. They haven't sold the rights, distri- distribution rights over here. Ah, uh, that's too bad. Well, I it understand why they're going to do it after the Father's Day uh, mess. What was that? Troma screwed over hard, long, and deep. Oh. Uh, Troma did? Yeah, it was Father's Day. That's that's why it says in the Bible, if you sign a deal with Troma, you, that's, you get what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Troma's kind of famous yeah, for screwing people over. I mean, yeah, they'll get your movie out there. Easy with this. They went to a convention together, and Troma was supposed to bring them a case of... Uh, Father's Day DVDs and Ashton six DVDs for them to sell. Uh huh. They didn't. Oh. And when they Jesus. when the guys from Ashton six asked about, it, they said, "Oh, just tell them to go to the trauma table and buy it there." Well, whenever I see uh, whenever I see Lloyd Kaufman being interviewed lately, he's pre he's uh, uh you know claiming poverty pretty hard, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's been poverty ever since the Poltergeist days. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, he's getting really bad about it now, you know. So I mean, who knows how much truth there is to it? I mean, right? I he's know. such a huckster, right? <laughs> and and so loud. Goodness, he's a loud man. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, That's one thing I I kind of wish people would stop giving him cameos in their movies. Because yeah, it, it just it's so distracting and it brings the movie to a grinding halt. Right. <laughs> okay. But hold on a We're about to go into overtime here in a minute, and if you want to listen to the rest of this, go to the archives on uh, Geek Avenue, and you'll get to hear it. But before we go into overtime, I'd like to say that for this, thank you to my guests for appearing tonight. My pleasure. And we will see you in two weeks. But yeah, bye everybody. About Lloyd. No, it's not good night. We can go in overtime. I'm just saying the goodbye pretty on air. Oh, okay. Because we're gonna get cut off for the live feed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's gonna be like daily show where if you want to see the full interview, go to the internet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks God for the trauma. What was that one very old screenplay? You ever seen that one that Troma put out? That one was a very good and very weird little movie. No, I never saw a screenplay. No, it doesn't sound familiar to me. That's one of the pickups that they basically dumped. It's basically a black and white film filmed by someone who's angry about how bad he's gotten screwed over by Hollywood. And he goes to him writing a movie about the movie that he's in, you know. Yeah. That's one I think I 
didn't bother with simply because it was a trauma release. But you're saying it's worth seeing? Yeah. A lot of traumas, well, 90% of traumas pickups, if you can find the right ones, are better than the movies they put out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the ones that oh, they just pick up shot, for distribution. Oh, Sucking Free, Story of a Junkie, oh, Animal yeah, the Musical. Cool. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. pretty psyched to to get a good version of Blood Sucking Freaks from Troma. I was I never yeah. expected I never expected that movie to get a real good video release, but the Troma version's pretty nice. Yeah, that and was actually a pretty good release. And every once in a while, you know, you just I mean, I discover like uh, you know, I would have never seen I probably would have never seen any Chad Farron movies if it hadn't been for Troma. You know? Uh they put out uh Oh, what the hell was that that first movie? I don't think it was his first movie, but that film they put out. Unspeakable. Unspeakable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, that was was a nasty movie, but you know, I mean, that's sometimes that's that's the kind of thing you're looking for, you know, and you're not going to find it in you're not going to find it in some you know mainstream movie, you know. Cat Baron was unspeakable. Tony goes to dark, dark places in it, and he really just don't care. Yeah, it's not a great movie, but it's definitely something worth watching at least once. Yeah. Unspeakable. I've never seen that one. Like, I've seen, uh, I've seen Easter Bunny Kill Kill, but I haven't seen Unspeakable. Moment, you know, that genre. It's definitely yeah, a go-for-broke kind of movie. I get the feeling when he was making that movie that he thought this might be the only movie I ever make, so I'm going to put as much into it as I can. You yeah. know? It definitely had that kind of vibe to it. Like, I'm going to throw in every gross-out moment, every scare, every gore stunt that I can come up with. So Yeah, I've only seen... I think I've only seen two films from him. Uh is Easter Bunny Kill Kill and Someone's Knocking at the Door. Has he done right. a lot of other stuff? No, not to my knowledge. He has some short films, but I think those are his those are his feature films. Okay. You live in Vegas, you said he's I think he's right in your neighborhood, isn't he? Isn't that where he lives? Yeah, I think he lives here. I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. I know he shows I, up at festivals here occasionally, but I see him posting a lot about polygrind, you know. Yeah. So I I figured he must be in that area. Yeah, he's he's either he's either local or close enough to where he can get here easily. Right. If I had but to yeah, pick the most underrated of Troma's films, it'd probably be Combat Shock. That one still doesn't get the amount of love it deserves. I know, and that's such a good movie. It is a really good film. <laughs> And again, very surreal. I'm glad uh, Troma finally put oh, it yeah. out under the American Nightmares title. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I still better, have the combat. Title. I have the combat shock on DVD, but that again was another movie that I had been looking for for years and I couldn't find a good copy of. Yeah. And then Troma, Troma comes through with it. Well, well that that movie, I found combat shock, shock in the action section of the video store. Yeah, the action section. Yeah, well, I was the like, original. oh, there's a guy with a machine gun that says trauma, combat shock. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> original cover art does make it look like it's a war movie, but yeah, it does. Know. But definitely, I mean, talk you know, talk about a movie that's 
got some elements of surrealism in it and definitely heavily influenced by Eraserhead. Oh, no yeah. Doubt about that. No doubt about yeah. that. So, you know. And Abel Ferrara. Yep. Yeah. I would say mm-hmm. there was some influence from Combat Shock on uh, Jacob's Ladder, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another great surreal horror film for all the United that don't get the love it deserves. Yeah. Yeah, I just rewatched that uh, recently, too, and I hadn't seen it for years. I, I, you know, I always buy these lots. I'll just buy lots of VHS tapes, you know, off of the Internet or mm-hmm. take them from uh, I don't want them just, just for one or two movies that I actually want. So, so what you know, do you do with the rest of them? I just have plastic totes filled with VHS tape that I, that I dig okay, through occasionally. Yeah. That I just dig I was, through occasionally. I was curious because that sounds like it would become a storage nightmare at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily there are a lot of thrift stores around here, so uh, they don't pay much for them, you know, uh, but you can at least unload them for like 10 cents a piece if you really need to get them out of your house and, you know. Hey, that works. And so, Ten cents a piece isn't much, but it adds up. It's a rare recording. It's a rare tape from. This is a rare tape. You can't find this very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I usually I usually take all the rare tapes out. So you know, but if you need a copy of Jerry Maguire on VHS, I got your back. Just uh, you know, (laughs) you're the guy. (laughs) You know, now I can tell. Now I can tell people it's all right. I got a I got a Jerry Maguire guy. I, I can hook you up. <laughs> or, or a Forrest Gump. You got if you need a Forrest Gump, you know, it's like every movie, every movie Don't you can think of. Don't forget the one that's uh, the most common VHS, and that's Titanic. Oh yeah, oh, Titanic. God. Yeah. Oh, I got I got some Titanic. You can't go to a flea one. market without seeing a Titanic VHS somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a there's a thrift store near my house that has an entire shelf of nothing but Titanic. Like they've they've got, they've got like seventy five copies of it. It's just the, a whole shelf down one wall in the VHS section. It's oh, just they like, just well. can't say no to Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, come on. But you know, it's funny. You think yeah. about any I movie think the that's sold. That probably was attracted to Eraserhead on VHS is that it's the only surreal film that came out on VHS that had a surreal cover. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was the I cover mean, that made me rent it in the first place. It had a kind of normal cover, the scene of uh, what the lead actress laying down and Kyle MacLachlan standing over her. Yeah, Isabella Rossellini with the knife in her hand. Yeah, but but if yeah. you if but if you look at the cover of it, they've got they they pull in so tight on it that you can't see the knife in her hand. So it looks it actually yeah. kind of looks like they're just like making love. Uh, yeah. And then you, you look really... over and there's Jack Nance with a freaked out look on his face in the big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was the cover. It was the cover for Eraserhead that got me to rent it because I was so intrigued by the bizarre image of that guy's face with the mist behind him, you know. And wow, that that I was never the same again once I rented that movie. Well, back in the day, after I got Danny Perry's cult movies, I'd always carry it with me when I went to the video store. Yeah, I started making lists out of that, like, taking my lists like to the video store. That's before I knew about retitling. Yeah. Yeah. That that was I, one thing that the, that the video hound used to be good for. If you could find 
you know, the Video Hound was always good with updating every year. If they found out new movies that had uh, different titles, they'd print them, you know. And, yeah, back, and then, before the, back before the Internet, that was invaluable. Yeah, that and Video Watchdog were yep. great for, for letting you know about all the different retitlings. And what I loved about Video Watchdog, and that's the reason I'm still reading it today, is they are so anal retentive about it. They will tell you if eight seconds are missing. And, you know, geeks oh, like yeah. me want to know that shit. Right? <laughs> well, for, for me, I think when I finally made the transition and really started exploring, uh, you know, more bizarre movies, for me it was Psychotronic was definitely my go-to. Like, oh, yeah, Psychotronic was great. No doubt about I it. I miss them. Yeah, I act, Mike Weldon is still around. I, I actually helped him set up the Psychotronic Facebook page a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but he mostly huh. just does radio shows now, so he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, yeah. I think he has a store out uh, on, yeah. I think he has a store Weldon out on Long Island. an example of one of those who truly and utterly got burned out on the magazine business. Did he? Well, you know, he he poured his heart and soul into it just long enough to see the print media drop dead. You know. Yeah. And so yeah. it's got to be it's got to be tough to see your whole life's work summed up in you know basically um, one one year of your life when the sales just drop right off and everyone just wants everything online. You know. Right. But huh. I don't know. Too bad. Oh, a lot of the old school magazines we depended on died when the internet popped up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but fortunately, we're getting a little mild, little mild boom of uh, print media with with relation to uh, cinema journals, which is nice. You know, Wings Chop yeah, being Tony one of them, but there's, there's two others. Yeah, exactly. Well, Tony works for <laughs> like two or three. Three. Yeah. Three. Yeah. <laughs> Wings, Wings Chop, Monster, Monster and, and Monster International. Monster International, which will be coming out probably at the end of this month. Hopefully. But yeah, hopefully. But uh but you know what? It's that's one of the great things about being independent is you don't have to put it out until it's absolutely ready. Yeah, I'll bottle it shut up, it'll be out when it's ready. Yeah, exactly. And, but we say uh, it in a nicer tone. <laughs> yes, yes, we say it nicely, and we 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 put a thanks for reading at the end. <laughs> but uh, you know, talk, talking about uh, you know, Tim Lucas and Video Watchdog, he still puts that he still puts that out on a regular basis. Damn right, like, I've got a subscription. Yeah. I've got every single issue. Man, like, where is he getting the money to to keep printing those? I I keep waiting for the day that he says, "Sorry, you know, we're we can't do it anymore." But I mean, well, he's I guess already he, moving the digital. He's already, I think, by the end of next month, him and Don yeah, are going to have end. every issue translated over to uh, digital archive. Yeah, that's the plan by the end of the year. But they're still going to keep doing the print, which is good because, I mean, how how he gets the money is the fact that he's got a successful model and he's got a magazine that people are still willing to buy. So fortunately. Okay. You know, it's the enthusiasm and he still that keeps has, uh, paying for it. One of the biggest bookstores that are st- still around, distributing the magazine. Yeah, and he works tirelessly. Nice. He works tirelessly. He's always writing something or doing a, a commentary for a DVD or something. I mean, yep. Yeah. He's always, you know, he's always got money coming in. So, yeah. but. 
Yeah, he's a pretty accessible guy, too. He can help you out when you got some really nerdy questions. Yep. <laughs> yep. Now he's going to be pissed at me because all, all these people are going to start uh, sending him emails with dumb questions, and now he's going to hate me. <laughs> you remember the good yeah. old days when you had to call Video Watchdog if you wanted to uh, get your subscription or anything done with them? And you had yep, to roll the dice. What, he said, what are you going to get? You're going to get Donna, who's the sweetest person in the world, or Tim, who's working on four things at once, and they the phone. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is pretty friendly, though. I mean, he'll, you know, I've never met him in real life, but, he, you know, just what you said, you know, I'll say something to him on Facebook, and he'll answer, you know. Yep. But, yeah, he's um, the yeah. one that, uh, he's the one that, like back in the AOL chatboard days, he was the one that told me where to go to get a region-free uh, DVD player. This would have been like, oh, really? yeah, yeah. Like for for some reason, like Circuit City had accidentally ordered this model of of uh, DVD player that was region-free, and they didn't know it, and they were selling them across the country. And there was another one in the store from the same brand that looked the exact same, but it wasn't region-free. And Tim Lucas was the one that told me how to find and be sure that I was getting the region-free player. And that, you know, when you get your first, when you get your first region-free DVD player, it just opens up the world to you, literally. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that's, that's one thing I've always been thankful for. If you had a region-free player, you wouldn't have to wait the... Three years ago, was it, to actually get the commentary from They Live with uh, Roddy Piper and John Carpenter? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And there's nothing like listening to Rowdy Roddy Piper wax poetic about his heyday as a a big big movie actor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can almost see his monocle and his glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. But but hopefully we'll get the devils out within the next ten years or so. But I doubt it. Yeah, I don't know. I think it'll probably happen within a decade, but it's going to take a while. People are going to have to die first. Yeah, we're going to wait for the right people to die. Same way, we're going to get a lot of so-called lost stuff that's just popping up out of nowhere. Right. Let the collectors die. Come on, die. Collectors die. So, we, so your family will really sell up your collection and we can find the rare stuff that you hoarded. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're ghoulish, but damn it, we have a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you know, it's the same thing. Like I said, you know, like, you know, collecting VHS has become such a vicious thing now. It's like, you know, you go on any of these VHS collector sites and it's just like, you know, if you don't already have your VHS copy of Last House on the Dead End Street, then you're not cool enough to, to buy anything from my collection or trade anything with me or, or whatever, you know? Really? It's like, like that? Oh, yeah. These people are just vicious and they're like, and they're like, you know, they're screwing themselves right out of, right out of, you know, it, it's like they... Not everybody, but you know, a lot of people just have this real attitude. Like, you know, I have a I have a pretty extensive VHS collection with a lot of rare stuff, but I don't I don't feel the need to sit on Facebook and brag about it all day, you know. Right. And if 
if some guy pops up and he's got something I want, I'll be like, hey, dude, you know, you want to sell me that? You want to trade? Nine times out of ten, they won't even write back to you. They won't even wow. respond. Yeah. You've wow. seen uh, Rewind This, haven't you, the documentary? Yeah. I, yeah, I know. VHS collectors have ignored a little two-minute segment that's almost towards the end of the movie where it's basically stated that by 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 the year maybe 2030, 90% of the video VHS tapes will be unplayable due to VHS rot. Right. <laughs> and the funny thing is, though, that, like, everybody's hoarding them now. It's like, what the hell are you going to – yeah, exactly. What are you going to do with them? But, you know, they're right. all going to they're all gonna be gone, you know, like – so, it, but for me, it's it's a really good way to get movies that never got a DVD release and are never going to get a Blu-ray release, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, but for some people, it's just I guess a point. I guess it's a point of pride. Look at how many of these cool old big box VHS tapes I have, you know? So, but it's you right. It's the same, oh, it's the same. it might damage them. <laughs> Don't touch it. You can't watch it. It's, it's like people who collect action figures but don't take them out of the package. Right, right. right. You know, it's like, True that. I don't know. I collect action figures, but I collect them because I want to play with them. What? Because I'm 40. I can't, I can't play with a toy anymore just because I'm 40? Screw that. Have you ever uh, seen David Cronenberg's short Ducati? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Isn't that about the same thing? What it's about is this guy buys a Ducati motorcycle and he just puts it on a pedestal because he thinks it's a beautiful work of art. Right. So these three motorcycle guys who are offended by that break into the house and steal the motorcycle so it can be ridden. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? So it can fulfill its purpose. And that's kind of how I feel about, you know, collecting. You know, if if you're collecting something that is meant for a use and you don't use it for that, it's almost like you're not allowing it to fulfill its purpose. You're just yeah. you're, you're creating a shelf space for it, and that's it. Like when I found the El Topo on the LP soundtrack, my friend was like, you don't want to pay $20 for that? And I'm like, shut up, move, shut up and leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's the original Apple release with all the Spanish titles for the songs instead of the English ones that are on the new CD. Oh, you've got that? Yeah. Nice. And you got that for it's 20 like I bucks? Found it on there. You know, yeah, for 20 bucks. I've never seen that for less than 70. I know. I, I was like, the first thing when I looked at it, I was like, 20 bucks. The first thing clicked my mind is this guy does not know what he has. They must cheat him. I better not find out that that any of that stuff I sent you a couple weeks ago is worth a lot of money, or you're in big trouble, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he'll never tell you if it is. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just wait until it's up on... It's weird that the El Topo paperback I got, I got it for 99 cents, and it's 20 or 30 easily. Right. Yeah. The uh, the one I got, I found at a used bookstore for nine dollars. I got the hardcover of El Topo, and you can't get that oh, for I less than like sixty bucks. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that was one of my cherished finds at a used bookstore was the El Topo book. If you haven't read it, half of the book is an denoted version of the script, which is basically the movie with Joe Dorsey commentary back in the 70s. Yep. And the second half is the interview that proves that he was on drugs back then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not only ever was he on drugs, but he insisted that his audience be on drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's talking crap like, I want to stick my hand out of a window so a bird can build a nest in my hand. And when the bird builds its nest and lays its eggs, I will crush it in my hand. <laughs> that way I will prove that I am God. Right, and that's where his whole being strapped to the kite story came from, wasn't it? Where he was, he, yeah. he uh, was strapped to a kite up in the sky. He saw like a whole different world in the clouds. Yeah, yeah, that was a crazy interview. Definitely worth reading. It's interesting, and actually. You can you can actually read that book online now. It's been put up online in its entirety because it's out of print and they're never going to re-release it. I can't remember where, but I think on Wikipedia, if you go look up Yodorovsky, it tells you where you can read that book online. It's interesting, you know, watching those interviews with him uh, in the in the Dune documentary because he does. He doesn't seem as weird as he is in those old interviews from, you know, from the 70s, but he's still friggin' weird. Oh, yeah. Like, he's not yeah, allowed out a lot, but he's still a weirdo. Because if I you listen to his commentaries, he even mentions that fact. He talks about how would the, he said, if he met the man that he was when he made El Topo, he would not even recognize him because he's not that person anymore. Yeah. And that's why I thought it was interesting, you know, we started off talking about, you know, Dance of Reality, and I thought it was kind of interesting how that movie seems like so much more, it seems so much more mellow than some of his other movies, but it's definitely still his movie, you know? Oh, yeah. That's a movie only an old man can make. Yeah. Right? No, you're absolutely right, Steve. That's that's definitely someone looking back at a long life, and he couldn't have made that movie. He couldn't have made that movie when he was 35. I think my favorite line of... is when he stopped himself from committing suicide and he said, the person that I am has already forgotten who you are and the person that you are doesn't even know I exist yet. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I rather enjoyed the the brief moment that I just made. I don't know. It actually made me laugh out loud when uh, when the father's walking down the street and he runs into the priest and he says, "Please help me." And he holds out his hand and the priest drops the tarantula in his hand and says, "Sinner," and walks off. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for some reason, for some reason, that just made me laugh really hard. Yeah, that was a great moment. <laughs> I think what sums up his views of religion is that one thing with the old shaman dropping all the different religious icons in the little Joe Dworsky hand. He said, these all look different, but they mean the same thing. They all worship the same God. Right. Yeah. He told him, to, told him to melt them down into one necklace and wear them around yeah. his neck. And that, does, that, that does sum up Yodorovsky's worldview a great deal because he's he's 
said variations of the same thing throughout his life, and you can see it in his film, the way he blends different religions into one unified viewpoint. You know, I find that incredibly interesting, and, you know, he's been consistent with that throughout his career. And once again, like you said about it, couldn't have been made by anyone but an old man. It all culminates so well in Dance of Reality. And, you know, that's I mean, clearly... it's sad that we didn't get all the films that he tried to make, like Abel Kane or Sons of Dune. El Topo, but I, part of me thinks that we wouldn't have got this. I know. We would have been able to make those films. Yeah, I don't think we would have either. And this is, and Dance of Reality is such a beautiful film. It's It's a great piece of cinema to have out there. I mean, it's funny. He kept trying to make these outrageous films that were nothing about him, and they all failed. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he started making a film about himself, it just boom, 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 boom. It was done for even even noticed it. I think it was already done when it was announced. His son announced it. Uh-huh. Yeah, his yeah. friend's like, oh, that's reality. My father's done it. He said, when will it be done? Oh, it is done. He's editing it right now. <laughs> Yeah, it, it came right, it seemed like it was really under the radar because it was like from the time that Dune documentary came out until this movie, it was like, I was I had no idea. I really had no idea that he was working on, you know, that he was this, I knew he was working on it, but I had no idea he was this close. Yeah, me neither. Like, yeah, and it's again, funny, it's, I've not talked to a lot of people who don't really know Joe Dworsky. And, but they've seen Dune, the Dune documentary, and they're like, man, that would have been the greatest movie ever if they would have gotten to make it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, it, it would have. have. It would have been. <laughs> I think it would have been yeah. the most epic, beautiful movie ever and one of the most gigantic messes ever in the same breath. Yes, I, I completely agree. It would have been. But you're right. You know, well, it's even funny. Even David Lynch you... really couldn't tackle Dune. Nah, no. I, I like what he did with Dune, but, um, but yeah, this would have been a whole different ballpark. Yeah. And it, well, what was it? Joe Dworsky said, "Oh yeah, I rape Dune. I will rape yeah. Dune." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is one of those things where he, like you said, he started so many projects. It's like you hear he's got a new project in the works, and you're like, "Yeah, we'll see." It's it's like the Terry Gilliams uh, syndrome, you know. It's like you hear he has a new movie coming out, and you're like, yeah, we'll see. And then five years later, you walk into the video store, and there's this new movie that you didn't even know was coming out that's done and on the shelf, you know. Right. It's like very, you know, it's very bizarre. But I guess that you know that's the price you pay for having a vision that you really want to see through. You know, you're gonna, you're not gonna get the money that you need from some major studio to make a movie like Dune, you know? Yeah, I mean, look at Andre Zulowski. He's been trying to make a film for over 10 years now. Right? Well, even he will admit that when he screwed over uh, Alan Klein the way he did, it it cut his throat. Yeah. I'm just thinking with the, I mean, you watch that Dune documentary and just, just try to add up in your head the amount of money that would have had to go into to making a movie like that, you know? Oh, I know. I, mean, I think they had already spent maybe $300,000, and they hadn't shot a single shot of film. Yeah, that, I yeah mean, and, they were 
And then there was that. Was what was the Salvador Dali's demand for for being paid for being the emperor of the universe? It was something like a million dollars a week or something. <laughs> yeah, that's what I. That's what I. I saw. That's what really crippled it. Seemed to be. Yeah, he had a lot of really grandiose ideas, and you know, but the cast really is what seemed to cripple the whole thing. You know, he he wanted a pretty expensive cast. Yeah. You've got to think, if they had just waited a few years, you know, after Star Wars came out, they would have had access to some of the special effects that they were experimenting with and not having luck perfecting right. you. And, you know, of course, by then... Well, look, 90% might... of the Doom crew moves straight from Doom, so when that collapsed, they moved straight to Alien. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yep, they ended up on the uh, on the uh, Ridley Scott O'Bannon crew. I, what was uh, is there any truth to that story that Joe Dorowski said that Dan O'Bannon was so depressed after Dune fell apart that he went into an insane asylum for two years? I've I've never heard that. I I never heard that either. Uh, Joe Dorowski said it in an interview. He said it in an interview, but I don't. Uh, as far as I knew, you know, like you know, he. I never, I didn't really realize that Dan O'Bannon was involved with that version of Dune. I thought he, I always thought he went from Dark Star to like Alien, you know, uh, Dead and Buried. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't Dune. His his involvement with Dune was never on my radar until I saw yeah. that documentary. You know, so I don't really know. You know. Well, I know, I know that. Well, I mean, O'Bannon I don't said, think he I ever. Think he was pitching the script to Alien. At the same time, Dune was falling apart. Yeah. Right. Well, and the thing is, I know O'Bannon, like, had sunk a lot of money into Dune, and to the point where he actually became homeless after after the whole thing fell apart and before Alien got picked up. But I don't think he was ever institutionalized. But I know he was homeless and really depressed and broke, but I, I don't think he was ever institutionalized. Yeah, I... I, I... Like I said, I don't know. The timeline just didn't seem right in my head. Yeah. I love Joe Dworsky, but he loves to spin his stories. Yeah, he does. He's he's very impressionistic with his memory. (laughs) If you, well, doesn't he say in Dance of Reality that his reality is what he wants to remember, not probably what it was? Yeah, it's not how it happened, but how how he perceives it. Well, I think that was the whole the whole point of that movie, I think, was, you know, that memory is subjective and, you know, we're all, we're all dancing with reality, you know. We all remember things the way we want to remember them, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like that girl. Was when he was going around saying that Marilyn Manson was going to fund a Sons of El Topo all on his own. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it wasn't, didn't he say it was just going to be a one-man one man cast, and he was going to be directed yeah. or dressed as everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, okay, that's an interesting approach. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that that goes back to what you know we were talking about before. Like, in fact, when I was watching uh, when I was watching uh, that movie, I for for a while I kind of lost track of if the if the father was being played by the same actor or not which kind of put me in mind of uh, 
like I said before, uh, that obscure object of desire, you know, where right. uh, he, he's so where the two actresses play the same same character. Yeah. He's so obsessed with the girl that he doesn't even notice that, you know, he's so self-involved and obsessed with the girl that he doesn't even notice that a different actress starts playing her halfway through the movie, you know? That was a lucky right. accident. And then, what's that? It was what? A lucky accident? Halfway through the film, oh, yeah, right it was. the switch half, the original actress got sick, and she had to drop mm-hmm. out. So he oh, had thanks. recast the actress, so he said to himself, I can either reshoot the first half of the film or just go with it. And it worked. And it does. It worked and well, it worked. yeah. It, it proved yeah, that's the probably, you know, it's, you know, all of his beautiful surrealism aside, that's probably still my favorite Benoit film is that obscure object of desire. And that's another one, going back to what you said earlier, Nate, is, is despite the fact that you don't entirely understand the uh, the political situation that the movie occurs in, you're able to just kind of absorb it and go with it as part of the surroundings. Right. Right? Oh, like, like yeah. I kind of had – I was like, kind of uh, happy when – like in, Rogue uh, to Death, that one Nicholas Rogue dig to Death. Oh, Two Deaths, yeah, with Michael Gambon and uh, yeah. and uh, what's her face? I forget the actress's yeah. name. Teresa Ruff, no something. I forget, but the whole movie is like the whole drama was happening with them. There was like a war going around, going on all around them, and you don't know what the hell that is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I guess I was most confused in uh, Dance of Reality with uh, the plague victims that showed up. What? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> were they actually supposed to have the plague, or were they just, you know, I, I didn't really understand that aspect of it. But then again, you know, I just kind of went with it, because I'm like, well, it's a Jodorowsky film. Well, you know yeah. Well, if you notice, most of the people that were convicted of the plague were people that were protesting earlier in the film. Yeah. Right. And I didn't know if that was part of it or, you know, because until the Nazis showed up, I didn't really understand what, what yeah. the conflict was between the, the Jewish people and, and, the, uh, and the other Chileans, you know. I didn't really understand what was going on with that. But like I said, right. I didn't know. I have no clue what role Chile played in, well, they hated in World the, War II. Well, Joe Dworsky said that the Chileans hated the Jews, period. They hated him because he was a Jew. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but I some know. of the interviews... Don't you remember that one thing where it showed them all subjectively uh, masturbating and they were laughing yeah, at him yeah. because he was uncut? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and I remember but him telling that story that, in interviews for years. The two people years. that tortured him at the last before El Presidente was overthrown was CIA. Yeah. They were. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize. Yeah, like you were saying, I didn't realize the the Chilean involvement in World War II at all. I mean, I just didn't even know they had one. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, those, those Nazis that came. You know, towards the end of the movie, they weren't they weren't German, right? They didn't no. they didn't seem to be. They were just embracing the Nazi uh, the Nazi politics, right? Mm-hmm. But I did I thought that was that something that struck me odd about that is you know uh, his movies are always so filled 
you know, especially like you can't even you can't even blink while while you're watching uh Holy Mountain without missing some important piece of symbolism, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, and I thought it was so bizarre with this, you know, this movie didn't seem to have as much of that in it, but it was really kind of jarring to me when I saw the swastikas because it put me in that mindset. I was like, you know, there's a symbol right there that everyone recognizes. You understand immediately what what it's about, you know? Right. And it, it was kind of an interesting, again, just like an interesting juxtaposition to me from, from his past films where so much is hinted at and, you know, you kind of have to put together, you know, like especially like, um, you know, El Topo where he's, you know, he, the the four gunfighters, you know, and they each have a different philosophy and he learns something from each of them and, you know, and it, and, and there's symbolism and, and, you know, it's so much, so much more perplexing, but, you know, you slap a swastika on something and everyone knows immediately what that means, you know? Right. There's right. no hidden, there's no hidden message there, you know? Yeah. Like, so I just found that kind of, it was kind of jarring to me, you know, not yeah, in a bad way. You know, but I was just like, well, oh, then, that's interesting. It's one of those films, if you went in cold about Northern Joe Dorsey films, you would watch the film in one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you knew him and knew his history and knew everything, you could, the movie's an entirely different experience. Yeah, it truly is. Like uh, the opening speech about money. If you didn't know his troubles about getting financing for his movies, the opening will be a little more confusing than it is. Yeah, it would seem a little pretentious without that context. Yeah. And it, w- it would not be a good uh, film of his to start with because I think, uh, funny enough, I think one of the things one of the things that I found the most uh, most amusing, but at the same time I'm like, anyone who doesn't know his movies would not find this amusing, but the fact that his mother only sang, she never sang. Yeah. She right. sang like, like the opera always singing like opera like operetta style and I th- I thought that was amusing. To me it was amusing. Me but too. I was like Yeah, I thought that was really funny. I'm like if you sit down with someone who's never seen one of his movies and try to get him to watch it, they're gonna be like, Why is this woman always singing? What what is she singing about? <laughs> like, <laughs> that was his most yeah. sentimental move of the whole movie. He said when he was growing up all his mother wanted to talk about doing was wanting to be an opera singer, so since he had a chance he made her one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, very touching. That's a very nice tribute to his mother. It's a good thing his mother didn't want her hands cut off because apparently he has no trouble with that either. <laughs> he would have made that. He would have made that dream come true. Oh, yeah, I can do that. He's always yeah. a big castration modus in his movies, be it the cutting of the hands or the yep. real castration, like in El Topo. Right. Yep. Well, and the yeah, room of a hundred, was it a hundred or a thousand testicles in the whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that's one thing I said, you know, I think it's very interesting because I, I think, you know, like we were talking about before, like his obsession with, with not, with using, uh, losing the use of your hands is very interesting to me because it is, you know, like I said, like if you think about it, you use your hands more than any other body part, maybe except for your legs. But I don't know. From the sounds of things, the three of us uh, sit on our asses and watch a lot of movies. So yeah, I guess 
I definitely use my hands way more than I use my legs, you know. I don't want to lose the use of either one, but, you know, they make provisions for you. You use the lose the use of your legs, you can get a wheelchair, you know. You lose your hands, right. and you really rely on people for a lot of different things, you know. And I kind of yeah. wonder if that's part of the metaphor, too. I wonder if that's part of what he's getting at, that, like you said, like Stephen was saying, like his speech about money, and knowing that he has trouble getting financing, you know, maybe this obsession with losing your hands has something to do with having to rely on other people for more and more and more things, you know? Yeah. And, and he definitely well, he's always said that. he hated that, having to rely on people for financing for that. Yep. He said in his dream world, the money would just fall from the sky and he'd be able to make any movie that he wanted without worrying who's going to release it or is anyone going to see it. Mhm. Yeah, like I still don't really understand. I I still didn't really understand the whole thing about like when Kevin Smith put Red State up for distribution and then bought the rights himself and then distributed it. Like, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really understand how that. If he had the money to distribute it himself in the first place, why didn't he just do it? Why do you? Why the theatrics? You know. Well, it's it, that was a that was a gradual process because at first he didn't have the money, but by the time it came around, he had raised enough money with the tour that he was able to say, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to try and do this myself, I'm going to carry it through. He didn't quite have right. a plan that way initially, but it was a last-minute thing where he's like, you know what, I'm going to do this myself and see if it works. Right? Well, I'm glad it worked out for him. I mean, you know, I, I haven't always liked all of his movies, but he seems like a very affable guy, you know? I mean, yeah. You know, he's likable as a person. And, and actually, you know, since since Red State, he seems to have found a resurgence, like a new love for filmmaking that's making his movies interesting again, you know? Right, right. It's no longer you know, just the... the problem with him is that he film. takes for viewers too seriously. Yeah. He takes what? For Reviews. viewers too seriously. Oh, Reviews. yeah. Yeah, he really does. I revere myself as if anyone took a review I did of their film so seriously that it would cause them personal anguish. That would amuse me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm nobody. Right. I'm just a writer. Are you taking my so seriously? Are you stupid? I know. It's like I, I, whenever I write a review and someone gets butthurt about it, I'm like, well, let me send you something that I wrote, something – you know, let me send you something else I wrote, something creative or, you know, a short film that I made or something. Or, you know, I'll send you an album that I played guitar on. You can review that and make me feel like crap if you have to. I mean, it's it's all just yeah. personal opinion. It's all just personal opinion, you know? Right. It's so subjective. And it's like that's – I often wonder how people choose – the reviewers that they listen to, you know, like we were talking earlier. Okay, well, I I read video, you know, Watchdog, and and I read Psychotronic, and uh, you know, Phantom of the Videoscope, because those were the those were the avenues I was going down. I was looking for obscure horror movies. I was looking for exploitation movies, and these were the guys who were reviewing them, you know. Right. And it's like, how do you decide who who is the how does the housewife decide between Roger Ebert or Gene Shalit, you know? Right. Like, you know, it's like they're, they're just, because it's just, now you're just talking, this is just opinion. You're not getting an opinion from someone who has a lust for the, for, you know, horror movies or exploitation movies. You're just getting a reviewer who watches thousands of movies and says, eh, or, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, when it's, it comes to the B movie and exploitation stuff, I ignored Roger Ebert. Yeah. But when it comes well, to the foreign films and stuff like that, I always listen to him. Me too. Right. Here's the thing about Roger Robin Ebert. Sangri, one of his best of the year. Yeah, here's the thing about Roger Ebert, and one of the reasons that I will always and admire him is even when he hates a movie I love or loves a movie I hate, I was always able to read his reviews and tell, regardless of how he felt about the movie, whether or not I was going to like it. And I felt right. that he was one of those one of those reviewers where even if you disagree with him, he writes in such a way that you're able to glean whether or not it's going to be good for you. And I always like that about Ebert. I agree. I disagree with him at least fifty percent of the time, but I still enjoy reading his reviews because I'm able to tell from what he writes whether or not I will like it. I'll always give him, uh, you know, I'll always give him some leeway because he did write Valley of the Dolls, right? Yeah, and and even more importantly, in my opinion, he wrote he wrote Up, which to me is one of the greatest. Well, it's the greatest uh, Russ Meyer film, in my opinion. But have you right. guys seen Up? Yeah, for a second, I, when you said Up, I was yeah. like the Pixar movie. I was like, he yeah, yeah, I, that's that. what I, I was like. I better mention Russ Meyer before yeah, people start yeah. thinking it's Pixar. <laughs> yeah, that is Up was I think. Uh, as close to pure surrealism as Russ Meyer got. Yeah, it was. It was. And that's just an astonishing movie. I love that freaking flick. Starting out with that scene in the Nazi torture sex dungeon. That's most of the fans that uh, came in on Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and stuff like that, they hate that movie. Yeah, exactly. Ebert wrote three movies for Russ Meyer. He wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, he wrote Up, and he wrote Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. And they were arguably Russ Meyer's strongest films. The, those two were quite a pairing. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I love that when people like complain about it. They said, well, he didn't write the right, he didn't do anything for the movies. Why should he review them? I'm like, oh, he made a porn, he made a porno movie. <laughs> a cool porno movie. Oh. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to tell people. So how, they'll be like, how did how did you get into writing movie reviews? I'll be like, eh, I, I did a porno. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you wrote one? I didn't say I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, that's what most people it. don't realize. It amazes me the guys from the 70s and 80s to try to hide that fact. Right. I mean, only yeah. recently, when with the new DVD set, the William Lustig come out and said, yeah, I did porno. Right. Hell, even even Coppola worked on porn. Back yeah, in the, but uh, even though it had his name on it, he said it wasn't days. him, it was a different Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, well, his friends say differently. Yeah. <laughs> the Bellboys and the Dolls, wasn't it? What's that? The Bellboys and the, the Bellboy and the Dolls. Yeah, I think that was one of them. I think he actually worked on three or four. But, you know, you got to yeah. make money somehow. The one that denies it the most is Wes Craven. Well, Wes Craven? Yeah. He worked on porn? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's how he got his start. Remember, he made the softcore porn together with... No, uh, I didn't, didn't know that. Steve Meyer, and that's how they got the financing for Last House on the Left. 
Hmm. Which has some he... fairly pornographic elements in it itself. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. going to be a porno when they first wrote it. Was it really? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Sex Crimes of the Century, that. yeah. They even had one scene in it where uh, Weasel and uh, Krug was going to rape uh, Phyllis's dead body. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it was just one of those things like they just put everything insane in it just to go for it. Right. Yeah, I always wondered how that movie all came to be because, you know, the scenes with the cops, like, you know, with the wacky music and everything, I'm oh, like, that this was is... them being scared to death. They're like, oh, my God, we can't make this. this that was them being like, oh, God, we got to put this in. Our stuff is too strong. Yeah, because that, <laughs> so I mean... They put the comedy in to alleviate it. Mm, it didn't it's work. true. Without no, the comedy segments, it would be far more brutal, but it still doesn't do much to alleviate the the... The violence. No, it doesn't. It yeah. almost just feels like you've been interrupted by a different movie temporarily. It's that song that gets me every time. That. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, like really, really. What like, the hell is this doing in this movie? What? Wes Craven said, "What shocked him the most when the movie came out is how people were pissed off that he made Krug and the bad guys human." Uh, yeah. Well, that. At the yeah. time, you know, people expected much more black and white. So having that gray area in there really upset a lot of people. Yeah, especially the scene right after they killed everybody and there was like guilty changing the clothes, trying to do everything they could to get every bit of blood off of them. Yeah. I had no idea that that was originally going to be a porn. Yeah, that's crazy. Sex Crime of the Century is supposed to be a full-on porn. There's still a little bit of it left, like uh, where uh, Sadie rapes uh, Phyllis. Uh huh. So well, it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be like a friendly like porn. It was just going to have a lot of rape in it. Right. Yeah, it was going to be like forced entry before forced entry. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Now, see, now, that's one of those things that you got to think about, like, back in the day, too. Like, so so that movie, so that would have been, like, a full-on rape porno, and you would have had to go and sit in a theater with a bunch of other people to watch this <laughs> full-on rape porno. Yeah, there's nothing creepy about that. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> To the people who are listening who haven't seen it, I have decreed and will. Forced entry is the only porno. If I ever see anyone getting aroused by it, I will shoot them. Yeah, For the no betterment kidding. of mankind. Right, what? you'll just be doing society a favor. A favor, yeah. God. <laughs> that's disturbing. Yeah, that's that's not that's not one for uh for happy fapping. No. <laughs> it's one of those that even if you think it's like, oh, I've seen Serbian films, the disturbing, most disturbing thing ever. It's like, oh, watch this. <laughs> yeah. And then you can totally watch their soul die as the as the minutes go by. I know. I, that's something you can never unsee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, our discussion of. 
our discussion of surrealism has uh, wandered into a lot of dark uh, areas. Maybe we should do a show of uh, of uh, uh, hor- uh, horrible movies that you can't unsee. <laughs> that would be kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cathartic, yeah. at least. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people would put uh, irreversible in that. Well, that, that's oh, yeah. one that always shows up. That that one always shows up on the list of any list you see on on any website, any movie website. That's like you know ten uh, the ten most disturbing movies ever. That one's always on there. Yep. And I think uh, Stephen, you and I were talking about this just a few months ago about how like I would give anything to see a list of disturb so you know. Ten movies so disturbing you never want to watch them again. That had at least one movie that I've never heard of or never seen. You know, it's just the same right. recycled list over and over again. And you know, it, it's like, and it's it's always yeah, uh, always the same. Irreversible is always on there. Lots of times, Solo is on there. You know, yeah, a Serbian and, film now. Oh, a Serbian yeah. film is always on there, you know, and it's it's like, okay, I get it. These movies are disturbing, but, you know, like, this this isn't original. You know, you're not, you know, find something that's disturbing that no one else has been disturbed yeah, most, by yet. Get, the problem with most of the me. films on uh, the most disturbing list is that most of them are just what I call one-trick ponies. Right. Yep. You know, there's you one movie your... that has... There's one movie that shows up on all those lists that I haven't seen that I'm kind of interested in seeing, and that's that uh, Beatrice Dahl, Vincent Gallo film, um, Trouble Every Day. Have you guys seen that? I've heard nothing but good things about that. Yeah, same yeah. here. I'm Not in really a disturbing way, that, but it's expensive. Just, it is a very good movie. Yeah, I, I really want to see it, but it's pretty expensive to get, so I haven't gotten it yet. That's one of those that keeps showing up on those lists that I've never actually seen. Martyrs does too. Yeah, Martyrs just a brilliant movie. Yeah, and 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 Martyrs is definitely disturbing. I mean, but again, oh, yeah. that's one of those, I guess that's one of the things too. It's like a lot of times you'll see those lists, and it's like these movies are so disturbing, I would never watch them again. And then you look over at your shelf, and you've got it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> never want to watch it. You never want to watch it again. I own it. So. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember when. Uh, Internet started. Solo was the badass cred film. Yeah. Yeah, you wasn't a badass unless you seen Solo. Right. Exactly. Never review talking about how horrible and disgusting it was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you know. But then again, you know, like that's that's what I was talking about earlier about how you know each generation kind of like you know you supplant the generation before. Now there's this guy who's writing a movie review who's like, oh, Solo is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. Meanwhile, this other dude's writing a Serbian film because he was so influenced by Solo when he was 17 and saw it for the first time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, so it's it's everything. I mean, we could talk endlessly about how, you know, everything is kind of pushing the envelope at this point. We all know that, like, you know, things have right back to the beginning of our discussion about how, like, surrealism has become so much more acceptable because so much has become so much more acceptable, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, world is a, the world is a much smaller place, and we're all, you know, we're living in this in these accelerated times because of the Internet, I mean, you know? Mm-hmm. But sadly, I mean, here we are. most of the films that we are talking about that aren't in the modern era, which I mean post 
no, we'll really never get accepted by the surrealism fans of the day. You said they weren't accepted? They won't get accepted because oh. you have to think while watching them. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And a lot that scares a lot of people away, sadly. That was a lot of the complaints about when we get out of the field, Dean was like, I don't know what to think about that. He's like, that movie was too hard to really understand. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what's called being challenged by art. And for me, that's one of the things that brings joy into my life is being challenged by art. And that includes watching movies that are hard to understand. Kind of makes kind of, life a little more w- worth living. <laughs> it's funny we were talking about earlier. Uh, this is just kind of an aside because we were talking about uh, tales of ordinary madness. But I'll never forget uh, me and a friend of mine. We watched Barfly uh, with his dad, and his dad's just you know, uh, you know, blue collar guy worked in a warehouse his whole life. Doesn't read books. Doesn't pay attention to politics. You know, nothing like that. You know, he's not never going to watch an arty movie, art film or anything, you know. And uh, we watched uh, Barfly, and, you know, the movie starts with Bukowski fighting in the uh, in the alleyway. And then he uh-huh. goes goes through all of this stuff and, you know, gets gets the book deal and everything and still ends up back drunk in the alley fighting again. And I'll never forget, we got such a kick out of it after the movie was over. His dad was like, huh, guy ended up right back where he started. What do you know about that? <laughs> we were like, well... At least he got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he got he got it. He got the point. Uh, I don't know if he enjoyed watching it, but he understood it at least. Yeah. I've noticed of all the so-called arty poets and stuff, the more common people like Bukowski more than the others. Right. Well, he was, he you know. He called himself the poet of the gutter, didn't he? Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yep. Well, again, it's, you know, the funny thing about that is even though he's kind of lumped in with the whole, like, you know, the beat movement and everything, he never really considered himself part of it. But no. you can, and you can look at it, you know, how far apart he stands from that, because you're right. If you give somebody, you know, a, a Burroughs book and, and a Bukowski book, and I guarantee they're going to finish that Bukowski book before they finish the Burroughs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Burroughs isn't something that you would call a page turner. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I like Burroughs I mean, stuff, but I like getting people like those that see the Cronenberg film Naked Lunch or stuff, or have just read Naked Lunch. Right. right? Or read Junkie, and they're like, 